my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valari Redis. Each episode of Valar Redis for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, going through them one by one instead of in batches. A standard warning must apply as well. These chapters are subject to change by the time we see them in their final form. Today's guest is a good friend of ours. We have worked together on topics like the Red Keep, on topics like the Great Empire, the Dawn, on topics like, let's say, magical diseases. And we've also worked together on a few adult beverages on a patio or three. Welcome, Robert, a.k.a. Indie Peak. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing really well. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an absolute treat being here, I have to say. And uh, your your title sequence is very impressive, too, I have to say. Nearly as impressive as your beard, which I was admiring <laughs> earlier. Well, I thought I'd go as damp hair as I could for this one. So, you know, <laughs> trying to pull off the look. I'm not quite as grizzled, but, you know, we do what we can. We do what we can. I'm not truly ironborn, so, you know. <laughs> I could go. Da- I could go dump some water on your head, Aziz, and you'll <laughs> really be damp water. hair, salt water. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't I want think, this. I think the water. chat would appreciate it. <laughs> so, also, I want to make sure people are aware that each episode of History of Westeros Valaridis is supported by GoodQueenAlley.tumblr.com. Nina's thoughts are present in every episode. You should check out her blog for additional excellent writings. Same goes for Joe Buckley and Emily of the Erie. Their show, The Isle of Faces, is an excellent companion to Valaridis and is excellent in its own right. Check them out. Scraps and Scrolls edition for Valaridis. And of course, stay with them for their Scraps and Screens edition starting somewhat soon where they will be rewatching Game of Thrones from the beginning. Pretty cool. You may notice if you're watching live or catching the video in some form or another that I've got a History of Westeros shirt on. If you go to historyofwesteros.threadless.com, that's T-H-R-E-A-D-less.com, you can find two different designs of shirts. You can get them right there. If you have live questions, you can certainly feel free to submit them. If you have questions that you want to ask in advance of an episode of Valaruritas, each episode of Valaruritas for the Windsor Winter will also start with a brief history of the chapter itself. We've got a few extra things to say about this one because, well, we were eh, somewhat part of the history of this chapter, not directly, but hey, we, we had fun. We were some of the first people ever to hear this chapter. It was the final one of the 11 chapters that have been released in advance of the book. It's the most recent, the last one. We don't expect to see another one. Balticon 2016, the last Saturday of May, which, if you're on top of things, you may realize that yesterday, as of this recording, was also the last Saturday of May. So, no joke, my friends, five years ago yesterday, this chapter came out. So we are like right on the anniversary of this one. So that's pretty cool. Even cooler, myself and Ash and Nina were there for the reading. We were at Balticon. We were among the group that heard this chapter for the first time ever. Jim McGeehan, who was a recent guest, was sitting next to me or right next to me, two seats away. Jeff Hartline, aka Brendan Beefish, was behind me. So we had a whole big group of friends there. It was, it was really fun. Shad, you have some fond memories of that moment? 
Yes, I was on the other side of the room. Yeah, we weren't sitting next We to weren't other. sitting we together. Separated. I was sitting with some other friends and it was a grand time for us. I don't think people know those friends. Actually, I think I was by Eliana. Oh, yeah. Yeah, were. I think I was sitting next to her now that I think about it. Okay, so cool. That was nice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was as neat as, as Nita points out, we got a choice. Like George actually offered us a choice. He said, do you want mercy? And mercy had been read already. We knew mercy. So people were like, eh, okay, you know, we don't, that was better than nothing, but we know that one already. And he mentioned the Sons of the Dragon reading, which was at the time hadn't been published. So that was, that was pretty cool. But then damp hair. And we were like, what? Nina remembers me saying, we get choices? And he told us we were all sick. He, you know, used stronger language than that, but he was laughing as he said it because he told us this chapter was messed up. And I, I assume you would agree with that. Robert, what about you? What was your first experience with this chapter? When did you uh, get a hold of it? And I believe you told me it was your favorite. Is uh, What makes it, it your favorite? It is. It, it, well, it's my favorite of the, the, the pre-release chapters that we have. Um, and I wish I had a really cool story. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it makes me feel very jealous. Uh, I don't. It was just one of those things where I think it was after I'd read through the books the second time and I was just really getting into them. And then suddenly I saw somewhere it's like a pre-release chapter from the Winds of It's like, what? Where? where? And, and hunted it down and found it. And, and it was... Um, it was the, the thing which struck me then, and it still strikes me now, is that this is the moment when I just took a step back and went, "Whoa, Euron's for real, isn't he? Yeah. He's not just like some little sideshow here. <laughs> He's actually going to do something massive." And it, it had to be a read it at least twice to to actually take in everything that's there. It feels so much more dense. I love lots of these pre-release chapters the mercy one's great the theon one's great but this has got so much packed into it it's just uh yeah it, I, I think this was just about uh, you know a little bit before i uh, launched my channel actually oh, so okay. uh, so maybe this was played its own small part in in uh, uh, me uh, venturing towards that that's great well that's just another thing to be excited about for this chapter that it may have helped the indie geek channel get launched just some uh, small bit there that's really cool I didn't know that. Um, this chapter, like a lot of the others from the Windsor Winter that have been pre-released, were actually planned for A Dance with Dragons, but then moved. This one is no exception. Aaron joins Arianne, Elaine, Arya. Wait, it's all the A names. He hates the A names. No, he likes them. He just wanted to give them more space for their own thing. <laughs> As a lot of you all know already, we've covered some of these chapters already in various forms or another. This is the only one we actually did a scripted episode on. And we also did a full episode on Euron himself. But the episode on The Forsaken was made about a, like three months after the chapter dropped. And the Euron episode was about eight months after that. So a lot of things have changed since then. Some of the ideas we held, we had back then still stand. The detail gathering remains kind of our anchor for continued discussions. But Let's review what's changed since then. Uh, a lot of fresh takes in part because of a reread that we just did. And of course, there's just been so much time to think about it. The Song of Ice and Fire history, we've had time to think about where these parallels have landed. And of course, Fire and Blood was added to the mix. That helped. But probably the biggest change is the TV show. The day after we heard this chapter, in fact, Balticon set up a room for people to watch Game of Thrones. It was during season six. It was episode six, season six, Blood of My Blood. That's the one where Sam and Gilly go to Horn Hill and Bran and Mira flee the whites just after Hold the Door. Hold the Door was the week before. 
And it's the one where Aries is yelling, burn them all. And Bran has visions of that. Which is a nice coincidence, too, because Hold the Door is the episode that has the bloody hand theater production, which is the one we just discussed last week with Mercy. But circling back to the Forsaken, Euron had only been introduced to TV audiences a few episodes prior to all that. So we really didn't know what TV Euron was going to be like yet at that point. We couldn't really take any of that into account. And of course, as you know, I don't really need to say this, but I will anyway. HBO's Euron is not book Euron. Get Pilo Asbic out of your mind. He was able to pull off the mad look. You know, he had crazy face or what have you, but he didn't have blue lips or the mismatched eyes or any of the supernatural stuff. And that's a lot of stuff, right? The supernatural stuff is a lot. So Pilo seems like a cool guy a cool and a good actor. But even he, who has read the book, says book Euron and show Euron. Not very similar. He agrees. So yeah, book Euron was about as present in the show as book Victorian. And well, there is no Victorian in the show. And there was that moment where Euron is swinging around his axe like a madman, the first one to jump on. That, that was kind of like Victorian, but anyway. On the other hand, Night King on TV, you may have noticed if you were aware of Euron theories, the ones that were out, a lot of them that came out after this particular chapter, a lot of the things that people predict for Euron in the books, Night King did in the show. So it's really hard to not consider this connection and realize that probably what the show did was take a lot of that Euron stuff and give it to Night King. Just a few examples. Silence. He wants to annihilate like all humanity, right? They're just the, the silence of winter. The destruction of knowledge is a really big one. Bran had, had that scene where Bran talks about how they want to, the Night King wants to kill him to destroy all the stored knowledge that humanity has gathered. Plus the gruesome rituals, the stealing of a dragon, and the biggest of all, bringing down the wall, right? That's a huge thing Night King did that a lot of people think Euron will do. So this also fits with the pre-existing theory that suggests Euron was considered but rejected as a green seer when he was young. If, if Bran, a green seer, is meant to save the world and they were searching for him, this could be a monstrously tragic irony if <laughs> they unleashed Euron and then in an effort to save the world and he's the thing that the world needs to be saved from. It's possible that that experience of being rejected, being considered for this magical role but then not given it was what changed Euron forever. Um, I'm not sure if Euron was empowered, but it's certainly one of the things we're going to talk about. Uh, so other brief similarities, Night King, two blue eyes, Euron just one, his other is black. Euron actually has bluer lips than the Night King. <laughs> Euron wears a crown of shark's teeth that we see for the first time in this chapter. Night King has his own crown made of bone. So there's a lot that's changed, as you can see, a lot to dig into. It's going to be a lot of fun. So Robert, just to start off kind of as an overview has the show changed your view on Euron uh, looking at this Night King stuff? Or just in general, how have you, how have you uh, viewed this chapter since uh, so much time has passed? I mean, I think you, you covered a lot of the big ones for me. And, uh, the, the Night King, absolutely, I agree that they, they took a lot thematically, at the very least, of what was intended for, uh, for Euron in there. I, the one thing I would add is the Cersei thing. Oh, yeah. Now, this is um, something, and maybe we can get into this a little bit later, but just trying to work through the logic of what is going to be happening in the Winds of Winter, it does throw Cersei and Euron together in a way that I'd not really thought about until the show happened. And then suddenly they got this alliance, and it was like, well, that's a little bit strange. Where did that come from? Yeah. But now I'm really quite on board with this idea of Euron and Cersei. I think thematically it works hugely well. 
the the links across with Kyburn as well. I'd quite like to unpick that uh, a bit later Ooh, too. Oh, yeah. uh, so I think that this that's the thing for me that made me change my mind slightly about what might happen in the book was the fact that I think book seven, this is going to be a major force in what's going on, the euron uh, Cersei link. It's, there's certainly things in Fire and Blood that made us think of this. There's certainly evidence of historical parallels that fit pretty well with the notion of a euron Cersei alliance, for example, the concept of a queen in the West, uh, a.k.a. Reina Targaryen. So that was really neat uh, as a possibility. I agree with you um, that Cersei is a big part of this. And also, so it's kind of ironic, isn't it? It's not what Euron did on the show. Because what your book show Euron, yeah. it's not <laughs> it's not him. It's what the other characters did around him and the parts that associate with him. So that's kind of uh, indirect. But yeah, I, I was just going to jump in and say Fire and Blood, because you mentioned it. That also, for me, the the big imagery there that we, we kind of knew this already, but that Aemond One-Eye, Euron One-Eye, fighting on dragons over the god's eye. I, I, I love this idea. We'll get to back, I'm sure, to Euron and, and dragons in a moment, but this, this kind of thematically works so well as this is the heart of this story around that geographical area of the god's eye lake, the Isle of Faces, Harren Hall, the inn at the crossroads. That is the geographical focus of this story. And I think that we've got now a little bit of foreshadowing that, George R. Martin loves doing historical things that we're going to get an echo of again. One-eyed person on a dragon fighting somebody else on a dragon. I think that may well happen. It's a bullseye, right? I mean, even, and it's the one blue eye that they both have too, which is really, yeah, it's so, it's a, and that, and that of course, as a thematic connection to the others with their blue eyes, the starry blue eyes, the sapphire like Eamon has. Yeah, you nailed it. That is a a really perfect part of this uh, pastiche of, of predictions for Euron that really didn't exist back uh, when The Forsaken first came out because it wasn't balanced against this, what we saw from TV and Fire and Blood. So as you can see already, lots of new ideas, folks, lots of things we're going to talk about. Speaking of, Robert, I neglected to ask at the beginning, what have you been doing lately over on Indeed Geek Channel? Uh, well, as you'll know, being an avid follower of Indeed Geek's yes. channel, um, <laughs> it's more of a rhetorical. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware. I'm just teasing Aziz. I'm just teasing. Um, uh, and I should probably say, I didn't say at the very beginning, Aziz uh, and Ashaya as well. My, some of my favourite people in this community, absolute stalwarts, and it is a complete honour being here. Um, it, this is uh, a channel that I hold, uh, and a podcast that I hold in extremely high regard. Uh, But what have I been doing on mine? Uh, No, absolute pleasure. Uh, What have I been doing on my channel? Well, I'm expanding out from just the Song of Ice and Fire um, into the Lord of the Rings as well. I've got a few other things sort of that I'm going to be doing too, but the Lord of the Rings, for those who don't know, there will be a huge budget. We're talking like billions uh, budget <laughs> for Amazon have, have bought the rights uh, for uh, doing a Lord of the Rings TV show. It's not a remake of the films. That's not what this is about. This is effectively a prequel um, and they are filming it at the moment. And so we're kind of building up to that and I'm obviously working through the book stuff as well and some of the background to that that we have in the Silmarillion and the other books uh, that that Tolkien's got there in the Legendarium. So if you're interested in the Lord of the Rings, um, then do uh, sort of go and check that out. 
On A Song of Ice and Fire, though, my pr- nerdiest, possibly nerdiest uh, video, proto video series that I've ever done, I followed up my what was Aragorn's tax policy with what was Joffrey's tax policy. Uh, so if you're, if you're interested in, in that, um, uh, this is a couple of areas of interest nerdy uh, books and TV shows crossed with public policy. I love them both. So if you're interested in what Joffrey's tax policy is, then I've got a video on that out today. That is fantastic. Yeah, and of course, you also have your Well-Told Tale channel. Is that that's still coming along nicely, isn't it? Absolutely. So if you, it's uh, also a podcast inspired by you. Nice. Uh, I'm, uh, this is a podcast uh, as well as a YouTube channel. This is a passion of mine is the classics of science fiction and fantasy. We, we are reading the things now that are influenced by uh, the absolute uh, foundational stories that we have in these genres. So we're talking about things like The War of the Worlds, Frankenstein, nice. uh, Call of Cthulhu, all of these absolutely wonderful stories. And uh, yeah, I'm audio narrating them, and that's all it is. There's no bells and whistles about it. It's just me reading you a story. If you'd like that, uh, The Well-Told Tale is where to go. Yeah, that is... I mean, you you hear the man's voice. What are you waiting for? Like, <laughs> I, I'm going to have to check out your Call of Cthulhu. I don't think I knew you did that one, and that is one of my favorite stories I've of all time. Three or four Lovecraft ones. Oh. Uh, they're, they're a big hit. People like them. Okay, well, I'll check out all of those. Yeah, but I will not listen to those as I'm trying to fall asleep. That's something for during the day <laughs> with sunlight <laughs> around. Yes, no Lovecraft in the darkness. That's... Rule number one. Uh, no, and uh, apparently my voice does often send people to sleep, which I'm <laughs> taking as a compliment. Uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not a problem with it, but uh, apparently many people do say that they fall asleep to me <laughs> on a regular basis, which I'll, I'll take as a good yeah, thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. All right, let's hit the synopsis. The first line is, it was always midnight in the belly of the beast. Aaron Dampere has been living in a series of dungeons and the hold of the silence these last several months, at least two months, given the progression of poor Felia Flowers' pregnancy, but perhaps more than that even. Aaron doesn't know for sure. How could he? And since he's our POV, neither do we. It's a timeless sense we're thrust into here. We get some brief explanation of where Aaron is, how brutal his torment is, very, and then Euron shows up and it's off to the drug trip via Shade of the Evening. <laughs> The visions are horrible, and while some of what he sees could be the product of his subconscious, some of it almost certainly has to be predictive. We've seen people tortured before. Heck, we've seen a Greyjoy tortured before. This somehow seems worse, though. Euron seems more formidable than Ramsay by quite a bit, but there are definitely some comparisons to be made. Ramsay broke Theon and made him reek while Euron seeks to make his brother turn from the drowned god to worship him. Euron Greyjoy, the crow's eye, seeks godhood itself, it seems. To accomplish this, he has gathered a host of artifacts and priests and presumably quite a few secrets we've yet to see unleashed, though the dreams Aaron is forced to experience definitely give us some clues, some pretty strong clues. But we're still in the dark, like Aaron has been. What Ramsay did to Theon, Euron wants to do to the world. He told his fellow Ironborn that's what he'd give them, the world. But he didn't exactly share this part. He didn't tell them it would involve destruction on a scale perhaps not seen since the last long night according to these Shade of the Evening visions, anyway. He kept that and quite a few other secrets from his countrymen, such as this. No one knows what's happened to Aaron Greyjoy. Only Christopher Botley came close to guessing the truth, and why not? This chapter makes clear that Euron is a kinslayer. A man who would betray his family would surely not scruple to betray his country or just about anyone else. Though Euron goes a step further, he would even betray his god. 
are all the gods, actually. But let's return to the lesson of Aaron's nephew, who recovered at least somewhat from his torment and regained enough of himself to be Theon again and to turn on the one who tormented him. Ultimately, Ramsay failed to break Theon. Likewise, Aaron's faith was not broken by his brother despite so many unimaginable horrors. If anything, Aaron's faith is even stronger, even as he's tied to the prow of the silence, even as he's joined by poor Phalia Flowers to witness whatever comes next in this dark but quite compelling plotline. So that's the Forsaken, known as by us, the god of it can always get worse, a.k.a. The Euron system, a la the Dennis system, in Always Sunny, we have E, eliminate brothers, U, usurp the gods, R, release the kraken, O, obtain a dragon, and finally, N, narrate this like an evil villain. <laughs> it's, it's quite on point because in, the, in this episode of It's Always Sunny, they're making fun of dating systems and how they're, they're breaking it down to the distilling it to its essence, which is abusing women and manipulating women, which is what Euron is doing, but on a much larger scale and with supernatural tools instead of just a selfish sex drive or something like that. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, it's all about how you break someone down and build them back up a little bit to use them and then just break them down again. Yeah, it is quite on point. You know, even though that's a comedy and this is quite horrific, it's the same gist of just abuse, abuse to gain power over people and doing it really expertly, uh, which makes it so awful. You know it's awful that because we keep getting in these spots where we feel bad for people that we previously strongly disliked. I mean, Aaron is a pretty bad dude. But through all his suffering, this moment of humanity at the end for failure and just not believing that this is just. Like, you can probably write down a list of things that Aaron deserves and, and, and call it justice. But this, I don't think many people would call this justice. It's, a, it's peak perspective shift from George, and that's really saying something because we've experienced sympathy for the devil in the series already, right? Like Theon or the Hound or Jamie, Cersei, Tyrion. All these characters have done pretty awful things, and I won't speak for everyone else on how they feel about them, but I imagine that there's a lot of mixed feelings on a lot of these characters, and now Aaron's there too. And isn't that a bit of a pattern? Isn't that neat, Robert? It's mostly Greyjoys and Lannisters, and, and like in the Hound is someone who worked for the Lannisters. People, these are the... the biggest share of characters that we start off kind of not being so into, but but we get put in these situations where ah, we don't necessarily like them any more than we did, but we don't, we end up feeling some sympathy for them because this level of suffering is is just more than anyone deserves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the, what George R. R. Martin has done, and I'm currently rereading the series myself or re-listening to it. It's the first time I've listened to Ooh, that's it. That's a fun experience. Um, what one of the many things which has struck me is quite how stark focused book one is. Yeah. If you just think about the POV chapters, and it's like 75% stark sympathetic, it's like all, all bar Rob and, and, and Rickon of the stark kids have got their own POV chapters. We have Catelyn, we have Ned, John. It's, it's very rare that we dip out to you know, yes, Tyrion and Danny, obviously, but most of the time. We're just seeing it from their perspective. And so for a lot of these characters, it's when we actually start seeing things from their side that we start to go, ah, okay, now I understand it. And it's, it's really good writing because it, it, it's, 
it's something George R. R. Martin, I'm sure he wants us to go through this mental process of thinking, I've only ever seen what that person did from the outside, but when I'm actually walking in their boots, when I actually see how or feel what they're feeling, it becomes a lot realer. Um, with Aaron, then yeah, absolutely. He comes across, yes, we've had a couple of chapters from him already, but uh, he comes across quite bad. Here, you still see him as a bit of a religious fanatic, it has to be said, but you have to say that what's happening to him, there's a worse person that is that is dealing with this. And so you cannot help but feel for him through this process. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's great writing. Yeah, right. And, and it's a theme that we've been pursuing all the way through. You've probably noticed it to some degree and it just gets stronger all the way through. There's, there's, this, there's this sense that George builds that it can always get worse. It's, you, get, yeah. you go from Joffrey to Ramsey to Euron. You go from civil wars to bigger civil wars to people doing to things like the red wedding to just you name it and now we have the winter and we have we have all these things that sound like it's going to get worse onset of cannibalism the grayscale i mean you're, but you're on somehow seems worse than all those things quite possibly especially because he may enable some of them or push them along or help them or or give give them more free reign to do to do evil Absolutely. And, and the one thing just on that POV thing, we do not get Euron POV. You know, and I don't think we will. And this adds to his kind of mystique. This adds to the fact that we, we're scared of him because we do not understand him. We've never got inside his mind. And, and again, this is surely deliberate on George R. R. Martin's part. He is showing us through the eyes of people around him, not what he is thinking himself. And that scares us because we do not know what he's capable of. All these other characters, we know what they're capable of. Cersei, we now know what she's capable of. So we're not as scared of her. But Euron is going to always be this, this other, and I use that quite deliberately, obviously, <laughs> uh, that this, this other, we do not know what he's about. We do not understand him. We can't get inside him. Yeah, he has the create, like Cersei lacks creativity. That's one of her things is she's not yeah. as imaginative with her cruelty. And same with Ramsay, which is they use sort of tried and true methods of brutality and control, whereas Euron is an innovator with control and subjugation and corruption and he does it differently he doesn't care about wealth wealth to him is just a means to do all these other things and i think of han solo and and leia and see he says i can imagine quite a lot and you think about what euron's capable of and you think yeah i can imagine quite a lot but then this chapter comes along it's like i didn't imagine anything like this yeah. <laughs> it's like okay <Exactly>. whoa <laughs> what else is there like what else is he gonna do like i feel like this is just the start it should be from what he's saying. I mean, if he his his stated ambition is to become a god, whatever that means, that being a god is not having a, a battle off the south coast of Westeros. That's there's there's a lot more yeah. to it than just that. <laughs> so uh, yes, there are bigger things that are going to be happening here. That's very exciting. Yeah. So let's get into some of that. Let's start off with a little bit of a meta comparison. That first line, it was always midnight in the belly of the beast. It's almost like he's Jonah inside the whale, which is probably a tougher experience than the Bible suggests. I mean, it probably stank in there, but Jonah got out of it alive. He accepted God's commands and turned towards his faith instead of away from it, which is part of why he ended up in the whale because he turned away from God and God you know, caught up to him. 
Aaron, too, gets out of this alive, though I would not bet on his long-term survival. He, too, finds himself in a horrible and surreal situation, and his faith is crucial to his survival as well. But unlike Jonah, he does not relent. He does not change his ways. And so while Jonah is set free to begin preaching prophecy to Nineveh and the people who live there, Aaron refuses to be a priest of Euron, and thus his suffering only intensifies. Now, to be fair, this is God versus Euron we're talking about, so it's not the most apt comparison in that sense, but other parts of this comparison work very well. (laughs) Now, the story of Jonah and the giant fish or whale, depending on the the version of the story you've heard, is also relevant in other ways. In that story, God orders Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach, but instead, Jonah runs off and tries to sail away. God sends a storm, and Jonah admits the storm is his fault to the other sailors. He says, if you throw me overboard, the storm will stop. Now, we've heard sentiment like this from the Ironborn, you know, because human sacrifice to control the weather, we that's, I mean, we've seen that recently. And of course, God calling himself a storm is familiar to what Euron has said as well, comparing himself to a storm. So many, many people see the story of Jonah as an example of God's forgiveness, that he will accept you if you repent. Euron is kind of taking on that role too. He says, hey, Aaron, you know, I'll let you out of this torment if you become my priest. But of course, Aaron's not doing that. And then the other key similarity too is Jonah has to accept God as the only God. He has to say all these other deities are false. Euron's pretty much saying the same thing here. He's like, all the other gods are lies, especially the one you wor- you worship. I'm the only one on the block now. And Jonah, so Jonah accepts this and is forgiven. But uh, I guess if he hadn't, uh, might have been kind of bad, but we don't know what happened there. Back to here, by the end of this chapter, Aaron has not given up his old beliefs. I think this is a hugely important core aspect of the story and perhaps foreshadowing that even with all his imagination, even in terms of inventing these awful sufferings throughout all this pain, throughout the epic plot implications and the supernatural terror, the way Aaron holds on to his faith is as meaningful and powerful as anything else in this whale of a chapter. It's a testament, eh, pun intended, to how well George is able to keep this story focused on people and conflict and human stories, even when there's all these magic and drugs and torture and battles about to happen and all these other things distracting us. I suppose we could also say the silence is functioning a bit like the ark. (laughs) So another, not just Jonah, but we have Noah. Instead of saving animals from a great flood, he's trying to help cause some great destruction. It's not a flood, but great winter, great flood, eh, vaguely familiar. Instead of pairs of animals of all kinds, he's got priests. And instead of trying to save them from extinction, he's driving them towards it. So a lot of inversions there. What do you have any uh, any comments on these uh, biblical connections here? Is this stuff you've maybe thought about before, or is it just kind of a fun like little thing to look at? I mean, I think it's a it's a fun thing to look at. I I, I think you're right. It's it's almost like an inversion. I mean, that first line um, about being in the belly of the beast does give this impression of this isn't just like in a on a boat or in a, a dungeon or something like that. This is something more real something more living that he's going through um the the jonah thing i yeah i get it i think though that george R. martin is very much as it, he's inverting it in that aaron is not going to be thrown into the waters right he's that's not he's it's quite the opposite he's been strapped in He's not allowed to to go into the waters. And George R. Martin has, as I understand it, confirmed we're going to get at least one more chapter yes. from him. So he will survive. This isn't a matter of him being thrown into the waters as a sacrifice. At the others may well be sacrifices, 
but he is not. He is going to survive. That is not what Euron wants from him. And I think that's an important point we have to take here, which I think we can build on it a little bit, is that we think of this as being yeah, being strapped to the front of the boats. And I, I held this thought for a long time myself. They're all being sacrifices. But Aaron is not going to die in this chapter, so, yeah, as far as we understand. It's a wrinkle, yeah. Yeah, so, so the others may well, but that is not Euron's endgame. And I think we need to, and, and this is something I... I personally want to come back to this is not this is a chapter this is not the whole arc we've got here of of aaron and his faith and yes in this chapter his faith is strong and yes in this chapter euron is trying to ostensibly trying to break down his faith uh but this is not the end this is in the book this is just the first bit of his arc. That's true. So I think we need to un- understand it within that context. It's the same for all the pre-release chapters, is that it's not, we because we've had them for so long, just these chapters, <laughs> we, we view them just as they are. That's a good point. But this is just the first of what's going to be happening uh, in, in to, to Joran and Aaron in this book. That's an important flag to plant throughout all this. It's very good that you said that. And I agree. We, For all we know, Euron will just like, Screw you, drowned god. You know, like the first line of the next <laughs> chapter will be him like, ah, forget this. <laughs> uh, Noga F adds, the other half of the Jonah story is Jonah learning to have compassion and appreciating the mercy of cold justice. So you can see it relating to that. Yeah, that's certainly the theme that yeah. could arise from this in one way or another. Something we've already talked about is how we see these characters that we grow to dislike. Even if we see things from their perspective, we may still dislike them. But then we see them suffer like this and say, this isn't justice. That's, that's, it really tests our, our instincts on biblical phrases like eye for an eye. Like that's, eye for an eye isn't really how we tend to view justice these days. In a setting mm-hmm. like this, it's maybe a little more accepted. But as modern readers, we don't have to look at it that way. <laughs> we, can, we can make our own judgments. Let's talk about the wine of the warlocks. It was thick and viscous, with a taste that seemed to change with every swallow. Now bitter, now sour, now sweet. When Aaron tried to spit it out, his brother tightened his grip and forced more down his throat. That's it, priest. Gulp it down. The wine of the warlocks, sweeter than your seawater, with more truth in it than all the gods of earth. But this continues immediately after... When Euron asks what awaits him below the sea, and Aaron answers as you expect, he's like, well, the drowned god's watery halls are beneath the sea. And Euron's like, nope, nope, that's fake. That's all fake. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so Aaron believes that his brother will be waiting for him. The brother, Euron, who is extremely important to his psyche. Uh, he's very sad about Euron. He's traumatized about his early death and partially blames himself because, of course, it was an infection uh, that he got from playing the finger dance with Aaron. But of course, there's also guilt. And this is what Euron, one of the many things Euron plays on that shows both his, just how evil he is, but also how smart he is. Because he's really good at manipulation, plays on that guilt. He enables it, says, look, yeah, you you prayed that you would, that I wouldn't torture you. You prayed that you would torture him instead. So, <laughs> it's like adding to his guilt, mm-hmm. saying, you, you prayed that I would abuse him instead of you. Rather than you taking it on, you prayed that I would do it. It's like, he's already building up to the fact, look, you've already prayed to me in the past. <laughs> you've, are, I've, you've already seen me as a god, in a sense, before this. What's, what's a little more? And 
he says the drowned god is an is a fiction. It's an invention of man. There's no Uragon. There's nothing. All this you've been holding your li- building your life around is nonsense. The unspoken sentiment there, I suppose, is well, if man can invent gods, why not him? Right? He's got the ambition, the skill. Is that sort of how you see it? It's kind of a mm, maybe. It's maybe it boils down to semantics. I, at first, I wanted to ask this question later, but actually, I think it makes sense to ask it here. Do you think Euron believes that gods exist and that they're weak? Or do you think that when he says the gods are lies, that he means it literally? Because when he says the gods are lies, he could be saying, like, what we believe about them is not true. Like, they're a lot weaker. That's the lie. Or it could be the lie is they aren't real at all. Where do you fall on that sort of spectrum of possibilities? Well, I think he believes that there are a couple of options. Either the gods don't exist or they do exist and they don't do anything. Mm. And, and I think that as far as he's concerned, it doesn't matter Yeah, because it's, it's, it amounts to the same the, thing. The end right? result is the same. Exactly. The end result is the same thing. He can, he can do stuff and the gods don't do anything back. And, and for me, I think this is actually, I mean, it's quite meta, but this is something that George R. Martin's done a couple of times, which is given one of the most obnoxious characters in the story an insight into how the world works. Mm. It's the same with Kyburn gets this insight into how sort of life after death works. And it's like something lingers. He has that great story that he tells. And, and he is sort of proven right. He does all his experiments and he creates Zombie Mountain and he seems to have understood something fundamental about how that universe works. And Euron similarly seems to have understood something about how this universe works, that the gods are not going to interact with us. And that's something George R. R. Martin has said. He said, we're not going to see the gods in this story. So Euron's right. I mean, we might <laughs> hate him for it. We might hate everything he does around it. But he's right. He can go and like thumb his nose at every god. They're not, they're not going to appear in this story. They're never going to come up and squash him. He's, he's, he's right. Yeah. And so that, I think, is, is a, a fundamental point we've got here and part of why he can be successful, in inverted commas, because he understands something that lots of other people simply do not. He's found a weakness in the system, a market yeah. flaw, and he's exploiting it. Yeah, that's, really, that's a really, really good way to put it. It's a cultural weakness that he's exploiting. It's like everyone believes this thing that's just clearly not true. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and you're right that he has he's sensed that. He's sussed that out. And there's, you're right, there's a lot of examples of it. Like All this time Bran spends learning about magic and the children of the forest, they don't bring up kinslang. They're like, they never, that never comes up. They're like, yeah, we don't care about that. I mean, mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't say it, they don't care about it, but it never, you would think that maybe it would come up. <laughs> or they're like, yeah, we actually do care about that. It, it never seems like it would have mattered to them. Like, why would the god, old gods care about such things? Intuitively, you can kind of see where he's coming from, but then, then he unleashes all this detail of how he's proved it to himself, and it's, it almost works on Aaron, too. He's like, wow, you really did those things and he believes him and we believe him that he killed Balon, that he kills Robin and Yurgon. Well, he doesn't kill Yurgon, but he kills uh, the other one, Harlan. Mm. <laughs> There's so many brothers that have been killed. There are. Yeah. So that's a really like shocking way to say, look, I killed them and nothing happened. I did it more than once. Like I, It was like I 
tried it several times just to be sure. And nope, nothing. And this is just, not just is this like a brutal surprise to drop on his brother uh, to shatter some of his preconceived notions about how the world works, but it also just is another thing where he's just claiming ownership over, over Aaron, saying, look, all this pain and suffering surrounding our family, I caused that. I like in kind of in the same way that gods are responsible for what we do or don't feel in terms of suffering from the outside. Like they change the weather, they bring famine, they bring, you know, they're in charge. (laughs) Euron's like, no, Mm. I've been in charge. All those things that you've ascribed to the workings of the gods, that was me. (laughs) So that's like you said, it's, it's very smart. Like this, this Mm -hmm. methods he uses to manipulate or, so peak evil, but there you cannot deny the intelligence that work behind them. Absolutely. He is clever. And, and George R. R. Martin, this is something, we, a lesson we can learn for our own world as well. George R. R. Martin is very clear, clear. You can be clever and evil, and you can admire the cleverness of somebody at the same time as saying, fundamentally, they're doing bad things. And, and that is something that is, as I say, it's true for our world as well, is that if all evil people were stupid, then we'd be fine. Yes. <laughs> the, 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 the fact is that some evil people are very, very clever. And he's giving us some examples of this. Euron is one of them. He's very, very clever. He's planning ahead two or three books uh, most of the time. And, uh, you know, Kyburn is very clever. Mm-hmm. George R. R. Martin wants us to see clever, bad people. And we got to, we started off with some who weren't necessarily so clever. Joffrey was very unclever. Ramsay is cleverer than Joffrey, but outside of certain arenas, he's very unclever. Like he's somewhat, he's pretty clever with torture stuff. And, you know, he was clever Mm -hmm. with the disguise and some of this deception, but other things he's quite not unclever about. But here we go with Euron and he's the, just masters all these things. I think that your reference to Kyburn is a really good call there. I, I sometimes forget to think about him in this light, but you're right. That's a, that's a perfect example. Um, hmm. And so this phrase, the last line of that, all the gods of earth, more truth than all the gods of earth. I wonder if that's just part of his sort of smarmy attitude about how fake the gods are, but it's still just, it's another way to sort of vaguely, subtly connect him to the old gods magic, which we know there's some, that's just part of him in some vague way. Like his visions more are on the side of fire and destruction, but you can see the, like he doesn't mention winter directly, but all the, the trappings are there. The, and of course the show gave us some more of that, but do you have any, any thoughts on that? It just seems like an odd line to me. All the, all the gods of earth. I mean, this, this. I think this is just him using language to make uh, his point in a more subconscious way. Again, it's a clever thing. He doesn't just say all the gods. He just says the gods of earth. This is where the gods come from. They come from humanity. This is us creating them. This isn't the gods of the heavens. He's not saying that they're up there in the sky somewhere and they could do stuff. It's the gods of earth it's it's our things it's the what we worship and and again he's just subtly using his language to undermine what aaron's beliefs are yeah very directly very head on it's interesting it's something that we'll talk about a little more in detail later is how he just he he takes the toughest thing head on here (laughs) it's like attacking a, (laughs) a, a high priest's faith that is a tall order to break that down um it's kind of neat because it's like I, I described this as like he's spitting in the face of the gods and then we have this ironic moment where Aaron spits in his face. But even that 
backfires because he's like, I'm going to spit in your face. Like, oh, well, thank you. I'm going to lick my finger. Like, what? (laughs) Even this, he (laughs) finds a way to undermine that and make it gross. Like, (laughs) but perhaps more importantly, almost certainly more importantly, is that some of the things Aaron sees in these visions are undeniably foreshadowing because he couldn't possibly have known these things were coming. Like, he sees Euron armored in black scale. And then we see the Valyrian steel armor like a few paragraphs later. There's just, I can't see a way that that's not predictive. Like he couldn't have just subconsciously imagined his brother in something that hasn't been mentioned. And then he sees all those gods impaled on the iron throne. And then a few minutes later, we've got priests strapped to prows, which is symbolically very similar, the death of all these gods. Would you agree with that? There's definitely some predictive power in there, or is it like maybe taking that a little too far? No, I think I think you're right, and I think that we're we're lucky in that we have one full, almost chapter long example of when somebody drinks this shade of the evening mm. and what that means, and we're told what that means in advance as well. So you will see things in the future, things that and I can't remember the exact quote, but things that will be, and and some things that uh, may not come to pass. So, and this is Danny, obviously yeah. in. Uh, in the uh, the house of the undying, and and once you accept that that is what it is, of course, yes, you're or Aaron is going to see some things. Some of these things may well not come to pass, but some of them definitely will. So uh, we can't trust in them one hundred percent. But when you go back and go through, say again, just using as the example, Danny when she had her visions, actually very high proportion of them were true. There were a yeah. couple of obvious examples of things that weren't, but the the majority, the vast majority of them were were true predictions or, or looking back in time to things that actually happened. So there, there, there was definite magic happening here. It's not just like random coincidence. Yeah, and like you say, it's, it's important you point to Danny, not just Aaron, because yeah, we already sort of, basically established that this stuff is magical. It wasn't like this. This is yeah. more like sealing that evidence tight, something we pretty much already had confidence in. And you're right, too. One of the things that the two visions have in common, since we're on the topic, the, the dwarfs. There's, in Danny's version of the, of the vision, they're ravaging, almost perhaps in a sexual way, um, the continent as if it's a woman. And it's like, well, it's a metaphor for these kings tearing the land apart. And so now we have potentially similar vision where we have these dwarfs capering for Euron and his mysterious mate. It's almost like the dwarfs kings, if these dwarfs represent the different kings of Westeros, that now they are subjugated for Euron or they're dancing for his amusement, which might mean that by fighting amongst themselves, they're making it easier for him. Something along those lines. How do you interpret the capering dwarfs? Exactly the same way you do. I think <laughs> nice. that so you you get the you get this in Danny's vision the the, the dwarf and I'm sure that George R. R. Martin he will have been thinking about that. And again, it's not literal. We're not seeing a, a scene, a cut scene from the future when when Euron's going to hire some dwarfs to caper <laughs> around in front of it. This is a symbolic thing. This this is that what Euron wants is everybody causing destruction because that is his aim. That's what he's trying to achieve in this sea battle is just chaos and destruction. And he will, even if people think that they're doing their own things, if they are causing death and destruction and chaos, they are doing what Euron wants. Well said. Yeah, and a certain character that loves chaos 
Littlefinger, we're going to talk about him later as a comparison to Euron using some of the same methods, but Euron just goes farther. He really did hire dwarfs for the Red Wedding to upset someone. So, hey. (laughs) But no, that's that's an aside. Now, as far as the part about dragons and krakens and sphinxes bowing to him, that's something we went into great detail on in our prior episodes. On We have some theories on what all that means. Yeah, I don't think we got really any, any... suggestions on that in the show about sphinxes no I so that's agree. one that we're still just wondering yeah um so robert if you have thoughts on those i'd love to hear them because i don't want i don't want to repeat what we've said but i think the kraken stuff maybe is kind of straightforward the dragon stuff maybe too but the sphinx one maybe is the one that gives people a little trouble do you have thoughts on that do you think maybe it's the citadel because they have sphinxes out there maybe like an oblique reference to alaris or Tyrion, who might be kind of a sphinx as a character for, for those who haven't listened to your previous one, I'm assuming you, the, the Krakens will be summoned by the blood in the water. That was a very strong thing we got in Fire and Blood, uh, the book. Um, the dragons, obviously he's got this whole crazy plan going on with Victarion and, and Dragonbinder and all the rest of it. The Sphinx, yeah, I I think it's deliberately vague, but my best guess is this is Old Town. This is a symbol of, of Old Town because just outside the Citadel, you do have those two statues of sphinxes. Um, and they're the ones that, I mean, they're also, incidentally, there's sphinxes outside the Great Hall and the Red Keep as well. Good point. Uh, so it could go either way. But I think the most likely is that this is symbolically what is he going to gain some degree of control over over the course of this next half a book or book or something like that it's going to be a dragon i think it's going to be a dragon he's going to be calling the the, the krakens uh, deliberately and old town he's going to gain control of so i think that that is just symbolically saying these things are now they're bowing to him these the, are the things that he has captured they are under his control symbolically right. so yeah. i have a question there for you i really like the idea of old town um of it being symbolic of old town what do you make of the line the sphinx is the riddle not the riddler in relation uh, to that, I think that's the one that causes me uh, doubt in, in terms of that interpretation. I have sort of a new thought on that that the show gave me. And mm-hmm. that is because the show portrayed Euron slaughtering sand snakes. I don't think it will be those two. But if they were borrowing an idea they got from George about having those, those two plot lines smash into each other, the fate of Alaris could be wrapped up in what's being displayed here. Like she could be killed by Euron. Yeah, it like still that. seems odd for it to be the fate, for it to be, you know, the Sphinx is the riddle just because Alaris is killed. Well, no, she wouldn't be like, she would, that wouldn't be the riddle though. No, I don't, I think she's a red herring for that comment. But. Yes. So that's the big que- the comment that makes me question things. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on that, Robert? Uh, I mean, no, I, I agree. It's, it's an intriguing little, I mean, it's one of those lines that it could just be throw away and we like try and read too much in to it because if you just take it at very face level it's that actually you know what she's not yeah oh he (laughs) is not who you think (laughs) he is (laughs) uh so at a very face level you could just interpret it as that now beyond that then yes i think you could say who is the most sphinx like riddle like person that we've got here that we simply do not understand i for me it, it is Euron. And, and so I think that there's a link across to that there. But it, George R. R. Martin does these things on various levels. I think he, he did mean it on that very, uh, Alaras is not who you think that he is. I think that's definitely there. But then we'll be able to look back and go, oh, okay, so there was another layer going on here as well. 
So you're you're right to say that maybe this this part is not the direct connection to share, but maybe it, or maybe it is. But I do wonder about this as an aside about Ellerus as potential and I, hostage. I mean, to be like fair, that. I think it is possible for it to be Old Town is the riddle, not the Riddler. I don't think that's a weird statement, okay. but I I don't know how I would explain that exactly. Yeah. Like what you have to solve Old Town to get this information. That's where you find like maybe it has to do with the Jon Snow stuff. I don't know. That's where the riddle is instead of the Riddler as in Old Town asking everyone questions. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's the, it's the store of information, isn't it? That's that's what Old Town is, effectively. This is where we have the information. They may have information about Valyrian Steel. They may have information about John. They may well have information about the first long night. They may well have information about how to kill a dragon. This is where the information is. And that is going to come out presumably at some point in this next book. Yeah, um, that is a huge question. Like, what does he want with the place? We have some ideas, but there are just, there are so many things that we might not have thought of that could be part of it. The other part of this vision that I want to bring up that might or might, might not be connected is this shadowy mate uh, with hands alive with pale white fire. We've seen pale white fire in a few mm-hmm. places. Uh, this is another thing we've discussed in the past. I'm mostly just interested in your take on this. Do you think this is an evidence of Cersei, Melisandre, Viserion, or someone else? Or, yeah, what do you think? Uh, well, I mean, this is, it's symbolic. It could be multiple. Yeah, it doesn't have to be one person. Yeah. yeah, so I don't think so. I mean, I, just working through my logic of what happens, I think Cersei is going to be by year on side. And this does make sense for it to be her. I think that... Pale, I mean, we're already thinking about like her pale white throat and all the rest of it. She is probably going to be, uh, and given the fact that we've got Euron and again, Kyburn, keep on coming back to him. Mm -hmm. Who is this person who is all about bringing people back from the dead? Kyburn. Could there be some like crazy twist here that Cersei is not just going to be this character that we saw on the TV show, but might actually turn into some kind of could she get injured? Could she be sort of brought back as a sort of a semi-undead kind of... I, I, I don't know. I, we, I'm with you. Exactly. I, I entertain these ideas during the show as well, so I'm with you there. I, I mean, obviously it didn't, it didn't happen, but it's not, it's not so tinfoil. Maybe a little tinfoiled. I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's tinfoil. In the, I, 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 do, I do genuinely do not know, but all of the building blocks are there yes. for it to be possible and to, for it to work out. So um, it, would, it would flow with the narrative if that's where it ends up. And for her, therefore, to be... I mean, the pale white fire is a thing I've not looked into hugely. I mean, I, I, but I, I think that for her to be in that vision makes absolute sense to me. Yeah. It seems that Euron acquired the wine of the Warlocks in the east. And near Karth, probably got it from the Warlocks, Hyatt Free and them. It's interesting that he not only is forcing Aaron to drink it, but he wanted Victoria to drink it too. He, I think he really does think that it'll get them more on his wavelength, at least to some degree. Open your mind, brother. Open your mind. You need a trip <laughs> with me. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder though, is he hooked on this stuff? Is he addicted? It's interesting to consider. We've seen a lot of People, a lot of characters who drink too much given the responsibility they hold over other people. Right, Robert, Cersei, Tyrion. Not you, Robert, but <laughs> Robert Baratheon, obviously. <laughs> it would be fitting for Euron to, again, top them all by being worse in a way that we wouldn't, couldn't have possibly imagined. It can always get worse by being addicted to something that's far more destructive than alcohol. This is this stuff. 
giving him ideas about world domination, about becoming a god. I mean, I've seen people get pretty megalomaniacal on alcohol, but this is just something else. Like, I've never seen somebody like, I'm going to become a god after, after a bender. That's a bit much. And <laughs> clearly not been on the right kind of bender, though, as he said. <laughs> I guess not. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> Farther to the east is perhaps where he gleaned additional, say, inspiration. Uh, places like Yi-T, where god emperors sort of still rule, sort of, or maybe not quite with the power they used to have. Uh, but during the time of the Long Night, this was more normal. And of course, Valyria, the, the, the people ruling Valyria, they weren't kings, but they were just, they wielded so much power. And it seems like this is what Euron wants. He wants that level of power over, well, over as much as he can. Here's a really interesting question that was floated by a couple of different people that we should consider here, Robert. Something else uh, interesting about the visions is that what's not in them. We've seen over and over and over how George loves to do like oblique world building or oblique POV setup where one POV has something happen in their chapter that has nothing to do with their story, but is pretty big for a, a POV that's maybe concurrent. Like, um, for example, Brienne, all that stuff about the deep ones in Brienne's chapter with, you know, like, what's that got to do with her? Probably nothing. It might not have anything to do with anyone, honestly. But it almost certainly doesn't have anything to do with her. If anything, it's got to do with, like, this plot line or something. Or the history of the Ironborn. It was like Ironborn history in a Brienne chapter, basically. Like, what's, you know, so it's like this is, that's, and we've gotten countless examples of this where George, like, bring, introduces a concept in one chapter that does, you know, that's meant for a different character, like uh, Arianne going into the Rainwood. There was all sorts of stuff, like going into those caves, right? When she sees all the stone trees with the werewoods. Like, what's that got to do with Arianne's plot line? Probably not much, but it probably has a lot to do with other plot lines. So that's cool. So what's not in these visions or what is, it's, they're very focused on Euron. Danny's visions were a little more expansive, but you wonder if there's anything guiding them here. Like when Bran has his werewood pace dream, those visions were maybe guided. They were very specific. They were going back. They had a, an order to them, chronological order. You know, it wasn't entirely random. The question basically is, is there something guiding these visions? Is Euron having more of an impact on what Aaron is seeing than we might guess because it's so focused on him. One possible answer is a glass candle. I'll throw this out at you as, a, as an option and you can run with it. Euron may have a glass candle. Um, one potential example of this and why he might have it is uh, they seem to know a lot about where the red wine fleet is very specifically and the fleet that's coming the other direction as well. They're like, they're trying to trap us between them. Well, there's ways they could know that manually but it's a little suspicious that they don't, they don't have some other means at work. Second of all, glass candles are specifically told to us as something that can invade the dreams of other people. When they were introduced, that's a very specific thing we're told that they can do. And thus, it's a big theory as to what's happened with Danny and some of her dreams. They've been guided from afar by, say, Quaith or someone else. Just like you suppose Kyburn may not animate only one person. <laughs> we might have glass yeah. candles popping up in other places, just like we've had two people drink shade of even, or three people drink shade of even, two people that we've had POVs for. What do you think about guided visions, glass candles, any of that? Let's start with how an unguided, as far as we understand it, use of shade of the evening slash weirwood paste is. And, and I'm working on the assumption, I'm, I'm sure you share that Shaded Evening is a sort of a warped 
anti-weirwood paste. It works in sort of the same way, but in a kind of a distorted fashion. There's definitely some now, similarities, yeah. Exactly. So, um, and the taste, the, the taste is a really big thing yes. that whenever Bran and Danny and then uh, Aaron here, they have it, they, the, the description of the taste is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens with Bran is that he then seems to sort of rush into like the, the vision world, whatever it is, and he immediately goes, and we get, I, I think even Blood Raven points this out, he, he just goes to where his heart is. He goes to what is closest to him. He sees a vision of his father. He goes, he sees the vision of what's happening in the Weirwood Tree at Winterfell. He could go anywhere with this, but he goes to where he is wanting to be what's close to him. Danny, similarly, she has a lot of lot of visions going on there, but she has like the first, uh, I think it's five. And of those, what what does she have visions of? She has visions of the house with the red door, which is what, like, one of the, the important points about her. At the state of Westeros, which is a thing that she's clearly be caring about. The vision of her brother, she has a vision of her father. What we have here, Again, with Aaron, he does that. What first of all, this vision of Oregon, this mm-hmm. thing that is he's it's one of his touchstones where his psychological damage comes from. Similarly, with uh, with Euron and then Euron invades it. So maybe Euron does have a way into this and is guiding this, but this, as much as anything else, it starts out in the same way that you would expect this to be starting out with what is closest and, and what is on his mind in the deepest depths of his heart. Um, that is where Aaron goes. So that's the starting point. Hmm. Then after that, it goes out into what is going on with Euron, which again kind of makes sense because everything about Aaron at that time is about Euron. What's Euron doing? What's he's crazy? What's what's going on? He's captured me. So this is what we would expect. So I don't think necessarily this means that Euron is guiding this in some way, but he could be. So I think that's my sort of overall thought there is that he is think his spiritual visions go where you would expect them to. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I think that's just how a drug would work. Your mind yeah. is thinking about something, so that's what your visions are about. And also, I these are visions. They aren't exactly the same as just a dream to me. Right. And so bringing up the glass candles, I just don't think that they're a necessary explanation, although I, when it comes to dreams, they might be relevant. Right on. Yeah, so there's a couple of iterations possible here. Uh, it sounds like we're sort of down on the idea of glass candle being directly involved here, which doesn't necessarily include the idea that he has one for other purposes, or that he has one in general. Or yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is, doesn't just cancel the, the idea entirely. It just maybe doesn't work for this particular portion, but, although it might. Uh, so I, I tend to agree with your take there. As well, I would throw in, it, it reminds me of Timothy Leary, who was the you know, big advocate of taking LSD, and he did it a lot himself, and he would help other people when they took it. He would guide them and like say things, suggest things, help them prepare. Like he knew what things to surround yourself with and how to be talked to to make it be pleasant. It's like the bad trip, you know, concept hmm. where Euron is trying to inflict a bad trip on Aaron, whereas, you know, someone like a doctor, psychologist would be trying to do the opposite. So this to me, this is Euron's inversion of that. He's like, he knows that 
this drug can cause terrible dark vision. I, that's what he wants. That's true for Daenerys, too, for her experience. You're right. They, they specifically, were, they did not make it a good experience for they, her. They sort of wanted her to be distracted by yes. so they could, you know, steal hmm. her soul or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what exactly they were doing there, but it wasn't good. So let's talk, too, about how he inflates himself. Let's move on to a concept that we mostly have applied to Melisandre, the trappings of power. No one explains this like her, so this is part of why she's the, the starting point here. She talks about it openly as important. She says power flows itself from the trappings of power in, in some small measure. Uh, she sells mundane tricks as magic in order to make her other magic look more powerful, in order to make herself look more powerful. She has real magic, but she also has tricks that she pretends are magic. Euron does the same thing, except he's not open about it like Melisandre. For example, his seamanship. He took the Shield Islands by not following the shore. He followed the winds and went out to sea and they're like, oh, he controls the winds, but that's just, that's just advanced seamanship. If he brings Kraken to the surface with blood, it might look like magic. A lot of people are going to be like, oh my gosh, he's got the drowned god's ear. He's got the sorcery, I don't know what, blood magic. But it might just be science. Kraken's like blood. They come to the surface. I mean, that's, is that kind of how you fall on this? <laughs> he's he's going to try to make it look like the priests are relevant, but really just any blood. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know about Robert, but I think it's not magic and he doesn't think it's magic and he knows that blood will do it. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I think that the, the, the Kraken, particularly to say fire and blood, it was three or four times we had the same image in, in uh, or message in fire and blood. Yeah. The, the, the Krakens were there because of the blood in the sea. And so that's, surely is going to be uh, picked up again. Uh, I th I th the, the point here is that why does he want the Krakens? Yes, they create huge amounts of damage and, and all the rest of it. My uh, take, and I, don't, I can't remember whether we're going to come onto this, but I want to plant the seed of it at least here. Okay. I, I said with, with Aaron that this is, this is the beginning of whatever his arc is going to be in this book. And we're very clear here, his faith is, yes, it's challenged, but he comes through nice and strong. I think Euron would have known that that would have happened. I personally think that he, he's clever enough to realize, you know what, this guy, he wanders a lot, he drinks seawater, he, he doesn't have a house, uh, so he just like sleeps rough all the time. Uh, his faith is incredibly strong. Simply putting him in a dungeon and making him have a couple of psychotic dreams is, or psychoactive dreams or whatever, that's not going to break him. What might break Aaron is the, is the question that keeps on coming to my mind. What is it that could? Euron knows him well. Would the idea that the Krakens, this very symbol of uh, the, the Ironborn, this very symbol of their faith, seemingly are following what Euron wants. Would that be a thing mm -hmm. that would be a, an, an apparent, uh, um, not just him saying words to, to Aaron, not just him sort of like torturing him, but actually apparently showing that uh, the drowned god is doing as he commands. Maybe that could be a thing which could break him. I'm not saying it will, but I, I do wonder whether this is part of Euron's plan as he is wanting Aaron to see this. If we accept the fact he's going to survive the chapter, the, the, the sort of the battle or some of the battle at the very least, 
he is wanting him to see this. That is a great theory. I like that a lot. And, and just to add on to that, an idea I had was that if people believe he can do that, uh, which he yeah. will if he does it, he can be like, look, no trade goes to Old Town unless I say I have control of the seas in a way that no one has had control of the seas before. It's not just my ships that rule the seas, which he will have that also. If he destroys the Red Wine fleet, they'll be the only fleet <laughs> of consequence in yeah. the entire continent. So he's like, not only do I have the only fleet, but I can summon Krakens. Like, talk about ruling the seas in a way the Ironborn have never done before, and they have ruled the seas before. So this is this is just a everything on steroids or on on Ryan of the Warlocks. So I like that idea a lot in terms of proof of concept for Aaron. Like, there's only so much he can deny if the very yeah. largest creatures of the sea bow to his brother. It's yeah, you're right. It might be pretty difficult for him to continue denying uh, what's happening. Mm-hmm. So other examples of what Euron does to establish his power to elevate himself prior to all this, just some of the basics like his magic, the sailing different places, the blue lips, which is the difference between rumor and fact. Like you can't, someone's like, oh, he drinks shade of the evening. Well, it's not a rumor when you see him and you see those blue lips. You're like, okay, that's, that's confirmed. Some of the other things you wouldn't necessarily know for sure. They might just be, uh, might just be stories. But when you have the visuals like that, the black sails and the red hull, that's really expensive. <laughs> Making all your sails black, that is really expensive. Not that Euron hasn't had plenty of means to do this. It just goes to show his character. He's willing to spend and spend and spend to, for his image. Uh, the eye patch, we've talked about why uh, in, in our, one of our prior episodes, why he has that. Of course, he, he doesn't need it, but um, you know, it's part of all this. Now we add to this, though. It's, it's like he's leveling up even more. The shark tooth crown is pretty cool. Never seen anything like that. But the Valyrian steel armor, this fits in really well with what you were just saying. It's an extremely similar concept. He did not believe Euron. He's like, no, you didn't go to Valyria. You didn't go to Valyria. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But then he sees the armor, and it, what does he think? Oh, my God. Euron really did go to Valyria. <laughs> mm-hmm. So with what you're saying with the Kraken and, and breaking his faith, this is, yeah, like he was adamant that that didn't happen, and then he saw something that he took as proof. Now, was it really proof, though? Uh, one idea that we didn't necessarily have back when these ep- back when we first did these episodes was that we were kind of uh, against it. We were like Aaron. We we're like, no, nah, he didn't go to Valyria. Even with this, we we're like, eh, I just don't see how it's possible. Now my attitude is he went, but he didn't go personally on shore. He made his slaves do it like, like the Valyrians do, going down into those mines to deal with fireworms and gases and burns. It's a similar concept. Where do you fall on this? Do you think Euron went to Valyria? Do you think he used proxies like this? Or do you have some other take entirely? Um, my only take is that we will never find out, mm. and it doesn't matter. Okay. It, it's it's genuinely isn't isn't the, the the important point as as you say is that people start believing that he did, and again, fire and blood built up once more. Quite how dangerous this is going to Valeria. Area, yeah. Um, when when we had yeah with Valerian and, and area, the, the that shows us that you know if. If Euron did go there, then that that makes him not just a crazy person. That makes him just a completely unique. The armies have gone into there. Navies have sailed in there. Dragon has gone back in, and they've not they've not come out. If he did, then this is really something very very special. But 
he's never going to say no. Actually, I, you know what? I didn't. I just <laughs> sent some people in <laughs> there true. to grab some stuff. He's never going to yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's. We're never going to get the, the, the. There's no witnesses to it other than the the his um uh, the people who his crew and he's cut their teeth out, their teeth out, their tongues out. <laughs> so we're never going to find out, and that's the point of it is that it is just more of his hype it may maybe it's true i don't know but nobody knows he's got some evidence to suggest that this might be the case and that will be enough to convince some people and then he's going to keep on getting more bits hey uh you're on he's got a dragon that's like amazing yeah uh, hey you're on, he's power. got valerian yeah. steel armor <laughs> that's amazing he's got krakens <laughs> that's amazing and then the more things he can add into this and there will be more and this incidentally i think it's part of the old town thing he knows if there's anywhere in Westeros that's got really cool things that he can use to be just bigging himself up more, <laughs> causing more damage and chaos. There's one place where that is. It's Old Town. Yep. So that is part of the reason why he's going there. Uh, do you believe any possible connection between him and the possible Jock and Hagar inside the Citadel? We, we assume that's Jock and it might just be some other faceless man. Where do you fall on the spectrum of the possibility that that's the same one who killed Balon and thus maybe is working with Euron in some way? In fact, maybe that's how a path to them getting inside the Citadel, someone that's inside that can open the door for them, something like that. What do you think about all this? Uh, yeah, I think there's three options. I think that is option number one, and that is entirely possible, that he's still in the effectively in the pay of Euron. Um, they're, they're not... Um, just hired hands to go off and do stuff for you. Right. They are assassins. So it would have to be him killing someone in in the Citadel or causing, uh, and if we, as as I think we probably mostly now do believe they were behind the Doom of Valyria, maybe he's going to do a mass killing. Mm. <laughs> maybe that's what he's hired for. So I think that is a, a very clear option. I think, so I think there's three possibilities that being one the second is is just like something that we genuinely do someone else has hired him that we genuinely don't know about that george R. martin might tell us a bit about later he, he was just introduced in the last book yeah. is coming in there yeah. so we don't know and the third one which is something that i've played i did a couple of videos on this ages ago and this it works for me, which is that the faceless men, they're not just like a cool bunch of assassins with some cool catchphrases. When they say, all men must die, that isn't just like a, hey, this is a cool greeting we do, this will make us sound great. That's actually their statement of faith and belief. Mm. Everyone must die. And the moment you start thinking, this is actually, this is a religious cult, not just a group of assassins. Yes. You go, what, what are they looking around at the world at this moment in time? If your fundamental belief is that everyone must die, when it's your moment, you die, that's it, you're gone. If that is your fundamental belief and you look around and you see uh, north of the wall, dead bodies being brought back as whites, you're seeing uh, Kyburn there bringing people back from dead, you're seeing the red priests bringing people back from the dead, uh, you, you're seeing death is being defied everywhere. That's pretty bad you're for them, yeah. It, exactly. If the moment you think that this is a religious cult who believes that that is heresy of the first order, they do not have to be hired by someone to do something. This could be them 
going out of their way, working out how, how do we do this? How do we stop this happening? How do we play our role in preventing all of this heresy everywhere? And that, I think, is something which is an incredibly powerful possibility, that he is there to get the knowledge of how do you stop all of this undeadness happening. That's really interesting. Yeah, looking at him, and, and if we take this a step farther, uh, if they look at him as some sort of means to what something that they would want to see happen, uh, like you said, the, the idea of eternal life, which is going to be preached by Benero for those who follow Daenerys, that's got to be horrific to people yeah. who believe in death being the only absolute. <laughs> it's like, well, actually, yeah. death is not absolutely like, wait a second. That was the one thing we could count on. So yeah, you're right. That's like from an existential perspective, that's ter- it could be maybe not terrifying is not the right word because they don't seem like people who would get terrified, but something to take direct action against above all else. Yeah. yeah something to take seriously like that. That's really, really good, a good way to approach this, this uh, mystery. Staying on the topic of the trappings of power and power being a matter of perception, there's no one better to consider than Varus and the power is a shadow on the wall riddle, which is a good segue towards how Euron may pump himself up through a combination of belief. Like you said, it doesn't matter whether he went to Valyria other than our own curiosity to some point. Like, he's really got the Krakens and the Valyrian steel armor. Does it really matter where he got them? <laughs> and no, not mm-hmm. other than for our curiosity, I guess not. Yeah. So, because it's going to r- level him up, rise him up, and put him above all these people and uh, above everyone. And that's the shadow on the wall. If that shadow is uh, cast by the light of a true visit to Valyria or a false one, it doesn't matter to Euron. He's got that power either way. This next quote, which I would love it if you read for us, Robert, is uh, p- perhaps as direct as Euron gets while we also mix in this uh, a couple of bits of, of vision here as well. The bleeding star bespoke the end, he said to Aaron. These are the last days when the world shall be broken and remade. A new god shall be born from the graves and charnel pits. Then Euron lifted a great horn to his lips and blew, and dragons and krakens and sphinxes came at his command and bowed before him. Kneel, brother, the crow's eye commanded. I am your king. I am your god. Worship me, and I will raise you up to be my priest. Right on. That is such a good quote. I wonder if that's just another example of him just taking natural phenomena and ascribing it to this. Like, I, I don't know that I believe Euron believes that about the, the, the Red Star, but he's certainly willing to mm-hmm. use it. <laughs> as you may, as you pointed out, it's also not terribly important, which is true, because it's going to have the same effect either way. But how can a man become a god? Like, how can this really be true beyond just perception? Because for him, it will go beyond perception. He really does have some magic underpinning all this, at least to some degree. If we were to break down how Ramsay tortured Theon, we would note that there was more sophistication than Joffrey's version of torture. He just liked it. Joffrey just liked torturing people. There wasn't really a point to it. He just enjoyed it. Ramsay also enjoyed it, but he had a point. He wanted to make Theon see the world differently to enslave him. He forced a new reality on him. He's like, 
You're not Theon. You're Reek. You're not human. You're a dog. I didn't hurt you. You made me hurt you. Right? He just, Stockholm Syndrome, you know, capped all the different psychological tricks that he used on him. You, you, uh, you want to smell awful. That's what you want to be. You don't want to be cleaned up. Just all these things. He removed your finger. Right, he take he cut he cuts your finger off because it's hurting you, and then you thank him for it, even though he's the one who put you in that state in the first place. This is so Ramsey sort of became Theon's god. Now, as we pointed out, it didn't hold. Theon broke free of that, and this is kind of where I wonder if the story is going with Euron. If 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 he's going, if they're going to hold on to him, or if he's going to be able to, how people are going to eventually break free of this? Because I don't think suppose the book's going to end with Euron just winning, you know, <laughs> like a dream of spring ends and Euron is on the throne. That would be a pretty big surprise. So at some point it has to break down. Something has to go wrong. Something has to, something has to defeat him. Uh, and it might be, uh, Daenerys might be a part of that. It might be other characters. And the reason I think of Daenerys is because of so much of this is there's so much, uh, deception going on with Euron and he, she is the slayer of lies. Now, we tend to ascribe that towards the Fagon presumed lie, but there's no reason why there can't be other lies in play that are particularly important, like this one. So you don't think Jamie Lannister is going to take down Euron Greyjoy? <laughs> I'm somewhat dubious of that one. <laughs> what do you think, Rob? You think Jamie's going to kill Euron in the books? I guess it's possible. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give that a big fat no, yeah. I have to say. it's. Uh, I mean, he killed show Euron, yeah. and show Euron is not book Euron. Yeah. And show Euron was pretty excited about how that went too, because he's like, "And I killed you. You're gonna." Die I don't know. Him. No lions <laughs> bowed to well, him or came at his command. Well, well, the, the one thing I would pull out from that though is that we have to say that if we accept uh, or, or we suspect that Euron and Cersei may get together in some way, and if we suspect that perhaps. Um, Jamie's um, kind of redemption arc may not be fully complete and he may go back to Cersei in some way at the end, then there will be some confrontation there. That, so uh, th that's the only thing I'd say, and I haven't explored that point any further, um, but you, you take season eight, or I, I personally take season eight, as you think you get a lot of the ending big beats yes. are probably uh, roughly right. But the the exact detail and certainly the build-up is going to be different. And so I think that it makes story sense that if Euron and uh, Cersei join up and if Jaime comes back, then there will be friction between Euron and Jaime. So that does ring true for me. Yeah, I kind of see that. That's why I said we shouldn't throw totally throw the idea out. It seems like it seems a little weird, but... You're right. It might just be the way the show did it. It looks weird, but it might just develop an entirely different way, but still have a similarity in the way the end game looks um, based on like what body is lying there with what person standing over them with what sword. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's consider how this is a microcosm of what Euron wants. Um, I'm going to read a passage that Nina wrote here from their first meeting. It's clear that Euron conflates kingship with godhood. His goal is not a temporal crown, but the position of god-king ruling over the lives and souls of everyone below him. When Euron demands that Euron release him because the god commands it, Euron overrides that command with his own order, saying, your king commands it. Later in vision form, Euron demands that Euron worships him by saying, I am your king, I am your god. He's both. 
Euron's ongoing desire throughout this chapter is to get Aaron to recognize him, Euron, as his god. This isn't just an expression of his own horrific quest for apotheosis, although it is. It's more than that. It's a reflection of the sort of total abusive victory once over Aaron and pretty much everyone else, too. But starting with his own family, the people he's closest to, the people that can... If he breaks Aaron, I mean, if the world... If Aaron, but this tough guy, super priest, actually flips and works for Euron, what, how many other people would flip as well? That's a, it's a huge difference. And so this sadistic pattern of abuse, Nina writes, is to hit people where they seem strongest. Back in the prophet, Euron had tried to use Aaron's faith to force him to recognize him as the rightful king. It's like, look, your, your beliefs demand this. And then, of course, he, Aaron takes his side route to do the king's moot, which only ends up making things worse, as we know. And, of course, this is eating away at Aaron a little bit. He's like, look, you yourself said the king's moot would be decided by the drowned god, and it picked me. So who, who are you really going against here? <laughs> And that's just really hard for Aaron to reckon with. I think that this is what we're looking at. What I said in the synopsis was, Euron wants to do to Westeros, perhaps the world, what Ramsay did to Theon, right? Make him dependent, then dominate what's left. And that's part of what we get in that description of blackened skulls. The new god will be born from the charnel pits. Charnel pits are like, that's like a mass grave. So he's, he's pretty literally saying that after I'm done wrecking as much of Westeros as possible, I'll rule what's left. And that's basically what Ramsay did to Theon. Is that, do you think that works as a metaphor for you? Is that kind of what, what you're on trying to do on a large scale? Would you add anything to that or, or maybe say it differently? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's a good, I, I do really like the way that you talk about, you know, you get Joffrey who's like, you know, the starting point and then you get Ramsay who has this kind of same kind of, theme going through there but is extra and then you get Euron who's getting the same kind of theme but extra extra <laughs> uh, so that it definitely works for me that that is where this is uh, is sort of going to be a god I think in this context is as much as anything who people worship and that is if he can be worshipped I think that will be him considering himself to be a god and so yes, what Ramsay did with uh, Theon was, it was along those way, that way, it it made, tried to make him have complete devotion to him. And so what, if what Euron is doing is to try to get people to have complete devotion to him through fear, as well as um, every other kind of emotion that he can get, then yeah, absolutely. It's about getting people to worship him. Nice. Yeah, I agree. Another great uh, notation here from Nina is, is the theme of how Euron is uh, perhaps a harbinger or aid uh, or usher for the long night. This chapter gives us a taste of that. Euron is kept in darkness nearly the entire time. He's, uh, and Nina writes, this is kind of like his dark night of the soul, which is you know, that's a phrase that has a lot of meaning for people in their personal belief system. So it's very literal, the dark night here. And he's in spiritual peril, so to speak, where he's, his faith is really being tested. And as you say, you're right to, to suspect that maybe, maybe his faith will break. It's, it's holding for now, but eh, we, you're, you make a very good point that Euron is smart enough to realize what's happening. Just like he knew how Victorian would react to the prodding and psychological 
needling he gave him. He's like, I'm going to tell him he's chicken. That'll get him to go. You know, <laughs> like, what are you afraid? Yeah. He's like, eh. now to be fair, Victorian's a lot easier to manipulate than Aaron. But Aaron, but that's the thing. When you're a zealot, everyone knows how you feel about things. You, you, there's no secrets. Like you, your positions are out in the open and you have very little wiggle room when you're a zealot. So it's almost like Aikido. Euron's trapped Aaron within his own beliefs and say, look, your God is proving that I'm the one. Like, if you believe your God chose the and then look, I'm doing it. I'm restoring the old way. This is what it looks like. You just don't like it because it's me. <laughs> yeah, and another really interesting point, I think, with, with Aaron is you get someone like Victorian. Victorian's been Victorian all his life. Aaron has turned his life upside Ooh, down, his yeah. beliefs once already. He started out, he was like the life and soul of the party, uh, drinking and having fun and all the rest of it. And then he almost drowned or did drown and just survived. And then he shifted completely to become this austere, the, the character that we know now, this austere priest. So he, he can do it. His brain is capable of completely shifting his entire worldview. And I, Euron will know that. He will know that it is possible for Aaron to completely shift from one way to another way. Good point. Very good point. Yeah. But I will say, it didn't work for Ramsey in the long run. When Theon got back yeah. out into the world and, and Ramsey had other problems and wasn't focused on him 100% of the time, and Ramsey wasn't just keeping him locked in a dungeon, when Theon starts speaks to other people, especially when he interacts with the Werewood, especially when Bran speaks to him and helps him remember who he is. So it's like Ramsey wasn't the only god around. There's no longer this proof of concept that I'm the only one who matters. There's cl cl clearly another powerful supernatural presence with real godlike powers, unlike Ramsey, actually speaking to Theon and guiding him a little bit. Now, I think if you think of that sort of recovery that Theon has, it's not a full recovery, but it's a partial recovery, and it's notable because he at least recovers his identity. That may also be what we're looking at in the aftermath of Euron. If we're looking way ahead, perhaps past the dream of spring, or not past, but past the threat of the others, let's, let's, let's presuppose, and it may not go this way, but let's presuppose that Euron outlasts the others then he'll still be around uh, for the final act as a major villain, potentially with Cersei uh, as an ally uh, or subjugate, whatever, um, depending on how that all goes. So Theon might be somewhat of a metaphor for the recovery that Westeros will have to have. He's, it's never going to be the same. Some of that trauma will never be forgotten or gotten over, but it'll be Westeros again. It'll still have its, it'll recover its identity I, 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 that works really well for me as a metaphor. I wonder if that's going to be how it goes or if it's just kind of wishful thinking. <laughs> but uh, have you thought ahead I, I to the may... end game like that in that sense, like the recovery, the great aftermath? I have. Just one more thing just on that, Aaron, does he change? Do, does sure. he sort of go over or not? Just, I, I think, I don't, I don't know. I'm just opening up the possibility that maybe he does. This isn't the end of the story. But I think the crucial thing is that George R. R. Martin, probably when writing this chapter, he's a gardener writer. He tells us this all the time. He may well not have known at this point. He may well, when writing this, be still open-minded. He's saying, yeah, okay, so obviously this isn't going to break Aaron. But what happens in the next chapter, will that, he probably will discover that. I mean, I'm guessing he might have written it now, but he was probably discovering that as he was writing it. In terms of sort of the end game, my, my take is uh, another thing George R. R. Martin said that we all know when he talks about what's the ending going to be like, and he says, bittersweet. Mm -hmm. And we, we always come through what does bittersweet. The, if you read the quote, 
he explains what he means by bittersweet, <laughs> and he gives yes. he gives a concrete example, a couple of concrete examples, both from the Lord of the yep. Rings, and he says it's like Frodo is uh, is there, and yes, he saves the the day through his actions, but he's a broken person after it and cannot enjoy the fruits of the victory and all the rest of it. That for me is a very bittersweet thing, and that I think is I mean my I don't know whether I've said it to you before, but one of my pithy, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I think uh, quite accurate perceptions that George R. R. Martin is writing John, for example, as if he's Aragorn, mm. this great returning king, subject of prophecy and all the rest of it. But in reality, he's Frodo. Mm. And though at the end of it, Frodo had to leave Middle-earth and go on because he, the world wasn't for him anymore. Yeah. And that echoes where we're seeing John probably ending up at the end of all of this as well. He's going to be a broken man. But to return back to uh, the other thing that George R. R. Martin said when he's explaining what he meant by bittersweet, uh, again in The Lord of the Rings, he sort of showers praise on the scouring of the, sh- of the Shire, which is the penultimate chapter of The Lord of the Rings. It wasn't in the movies. George R. R. Martin thinks this is a wonderful thing. Basically, the hobbits come back and uh, spoilers if you've never <laughs> read the books, but the yeah. hobbits come back to the Shire and, hey, the Shire's not as they left it. It's been taken yeah. over by this big baddie. This big baddie is Araman, uh, who is effectively the secondary big bad of this story. We've got Sauron, but Saruman's the second big bad of this story. And they use effectively the skills um, that they have gained in order through this story to be restoring their own land to how it should be and getting rid of Saruman. And this is what George R. Martin says he is going to be basing the feel of the end of A Song of Ice and Fire on that. Nice. So we have to look at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire and go, okay, so once the big baddie's gone, this is the uh, high level, Once, let's say the others have been got rid of, who's going to be the second big bad that has to be dealt with? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, and Euron, as a sort of a Saruman substitute, kind of works for me. It does. I have to say, it works really well. So this idea that after they've done everyone like huge sigh of relief, we've dealt with this this, uh, big problem or the big problems of ice and fire. What now? Well, we've still got Euron to deal with. still picking up the pieces and yeah. Exactly. And just like, yeah. Just like your example says, like Saruman helped Sauron get back into the world, and then after Sauron's gone, he Saruman's still there, and that would also be pretty fitting for Euron uh, helping the others do their thing, yeah. surviving them, and then continuing on after they've wrecked all this destruction because that's part of his goal. Yeah, it's a that's a really good parallel. I like that. Yeah, well, it's as I say, I'd highly recommend you, you can just Google it when you say to George R. R. Martin. I can't remember who the interview was with, but he when he's talking about bittersweet he then goes on to talk about those things it's it's well worth just digging into what he says so this isn't just yeah. me coming out with lord of the rings parallels because <laughs> i like the lord of the rings this this is him coming out with these parallels and saying that's what the feel of this is going to be at the end nice yeah that's a that's a great great take if we return to the concept of charnel pits the and he says a new god will be born from that it, not only do we have all this like darkness metaphor and ushering in darkness that fits nicely with Euron ushering in the long night or helping to usher it in. So does this, because we have all these mass deaths that's being referred to, a god emerging from all these corpses. Well, the corpses of the whites, if they're the walking dead, that 
adds a different angle to this, him using that great destruction slash distraction of an army of the dead to gain more power is, is fits quite nicely with this uh, symbolism here and with that dream. And it's so bad. I mean, George is so creative with this character. It's the most selfish character I can think of. I mean, this guy, he literally wants to inflict supreme pain on everyone for his own satisfaction. Like every being, not just physical, but emotional. Like he wants to rule everything, <laughs> every aspect of it. It's, it's the most opposite to the notion of communal <laughs> I could think of. It's yeah. like all, all for one, no, one for all, no, all for one. Euron is the one. Real briefly, fatherhood, I think is interesting. Like Joffrey, we, we keep talking to these, making these comparisons to the previous act villains. Like Joffrey is a little, a lot of fathering in, in terms of why Joffrey came out the way he is. Like Robert's really brutal. Robert was a great warrior. Robert hit him at least once. And this is very likely part of why Joffrey came out the way he did. I mean, possibly would have been kind of bad. Anyway, obviously Cersei wasn't a very good mother either. Still, when you think about that with Ramsay, it's even bigger. Like, obviously, Ramsay wanted to be worthy of a Bolton, wanted to be worthy of his father in particular, who was just really brutal to him, the way he talked to him and all that. I don't know if Euron had issues with Kellon Greyjoy. That's something that I wonder if that'll, if George wants to get a little more human with Euron or just have him just be a little more supernatural and just have this just come because of the drugs and all the other stuff. I'm not sure, but I wonder if that's going to be a thing that emerges because that's just such a big part of A Song of Ice and Fire, living in the shadow of your father, living in the shadow of prior generations. Kellon is literally a big man, six foot six. I, I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Is that kind of just probably not that important or is that something that maybe you find compelling? I'm, I'm curious about it. We don't have much to go on. We, we don't have much to go on. I mean, I think certainly I, I would definitely agree with both uh, Ramsey and Joffrey. Um, uh, and not just them, but you know, huge amounts of other characters. Tyrion's living in his father's oh, shadow. Uh, John, John is as well of, of, of Ned's shadow, certainly. And um, then you get all all the way through. So many of these characters are like that. Quellon Greyjoy comes across as being sort of just stereotypical Ironborn, and I don't, I, I don't think that that's. I mean, he was more, but he hasn't been. Uh, other than that, this is a culture that he has grown up, Euron has grown up in. Um, I don't think that that's a specific thing that's going there. I, do, I mean, I I love this, which you touched on earlier, this idea of maybe Bloodraven made contact with him. Um, we don't know exactly what happened there. If this was a rejection in some way, then that could be like the sort of the father image that we've got going on there a rejection by somebody who's a potential mentor that i think is perhaps the sort the slightly stronger link because he is aping so much of, i mean even right down to the one eye thing is that this is this is so uh and the crows and, and all the rest of it this is so building on the imagery of blood raven um that 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 seems to be in his subconscious at the very least yeah yeah right on well said God's made the world and life is cruel, then gods are cruel. And Euron sort of embodying that. And with the Ironborn, that really works. Now, I'm not sure if Euron will approach it differently with different cultures. Likely, he'll just use some form of brutality and, and manipulation. But with the Ironborn, we've already seen how 
big this is a part of their culture in the first place. And this really fits in with what you were saying about maybe Euron expecting that he wouldn't be able to break his brother because Euron knows that his brother is accustomed to pain. All the Ironborn are. Like, he inflicts it on himself. He's a zealot that walks out in the water naked in the cold and sleep. Like you said, he sleeps out in, in the wilderness and just takes on all sorts of physical deprivations as part of his fate. So he's already used to suffering to get closer to God, which is part of So in, in a sense, this is bringing him closer to the drowned God, even as Euron's saying, you know, the drowned God is fake. So as he's allowing his brother to feel this faith, he's undermining it at the same moment. That's really interesting because um, it fits so well with what they already believe. And this is part of why your idea is really strong there. But let's have another quote here. Now it was metal underneath the crow's eye, a great, tall, twisted seat of razor-sharp iron, barbs and blades and broken swords, all dripping blood, impaled upon the longer spikes were the bodies of the gods. The maiden was there, and the father and the mother, the warrior and crone and smith, even the stranger. They hung side by side with all manner of queer foreign gods, the great shepherd and the black goat, three-headed Troyos and the pale child Bacalon, the lord of lights and the butterfly god of Narth. And there, swollen and green, half devoured by crabs, the drowned god festered with the rest, seawater still dripping from his hair. As I said before, this is great foreshadowing as well for all them bring tied to the prows of the ships. Now, why do you suppose he needs such a varied group of priests? Is it just because he wants to show his dominion over as many as possible, or do you think there's something else to it? Well, just on that quote, I think that the you're very right about the foreshadowing the priests and the prows, but I think there's another angle to okay, this, yeah. the kind of the it conqueror is. angle, mm, yes. which is the Iron Throne was literally, this is a, a figure of submission. Mm -hmm. the the swords that make up the Iron Throne are the swords that are handed over by the defeated enemies. And so the Iron Throne is being remade with his new defeated enemy, with Euron's defeated enemies, which are the gods. Nice. So that is what this the, the, the symbolism here is, that this is him sitting on a throne of all of his vanquished foes in the same way that Aegon the Conqueror did. It's just that his vanquished foes are the gods. Yeah, and built up from the burnt and blackened skulls, which would presumably be the people. So he's defeated the people, but the, those aren't the real defeat. That's not the real victory. This is the real victory. This is what's worth hanging on the Iron Throne. Absolutely. And as for the, um, the, the varied group, so he's got, uh, he's got some uh, priests of the Seven. He's got a priest of the law. He's got Aaron. He's got uh, the warlocks or a couple of warlocks at least. Yep. My my take is that what he's trying to do here in this battle, and incidentally, I think he is trying to time this battle to happen at the same time as the battle over in Slaver's Bay. Mm. So you're getting the Dragonbinder being blown and death and sacrifice happening at the same time on the other side of the world as this. I think he is trying to create this huge sacrifice of blood and chaos. He is trying to do everything at the same time. He is trying to summon Krakens. He's trying to control the dragon. He is trying to get as many people dead as possible. He is trying to make every single 
priest magic user that he could lay his hands on, they are going to be trying to do whatever they can. They're going to be calling on their gods. They're going to be casting their spells. They're going to be doing whatever they can because he just wants to create immense chaos and destruction. I, he's not, it's not about winning a battle. It's about how can I create the biggest bang happening in one go? And, and he's going to do everything at the same time. Nice. That does add a bit to the idea that he's got some other means, like a glass candle to see what's happening yeah. elsewhere. Otherwise, such a arranging such a thing would be... I don't know how else that would be possible to know what's going on over there at the same time. Well, the dusky woman would be my personal nice. take. Yes, she had some way. They have some way to communicate or, yeah, that's a good call. A big mystery. Like, what is her deal? I've sort of given up on guessing because I haven't had any new thoughts on her in a while, but I'm, uh, she remains a huge curiosity. It's I like, can give you my 10-second take. Do it. Is yeah, let's do is, it. He is walking into her, mm. uh, and he that's why he gave her as the gift to Victarion, and therefore he is seeing through her eyes what is happening. So that's why and he I chose guess. her, because he knows he can do that. Yes. He knows he can do that, and he she can't speak or say anything. She can't write anything down. Nice. Okay. All right. Yeah. There's. I, I've seen variations on a theory like that, and I am definitely open to it. So we shall see. A really good thought from Nina. Uh, sort of a summary, a high level view on what's happening here with Aaron. She says that yeah, him taking refuge in his faith is. She agrees that it's a really meaningful part of this chapter, and it's a it's a one of the core elements to the character side of all this, which is of course a core element to the story as a whole, and. We, if you think back to where Bale, uh, Aaron started, the very first chapter he has, he's thinking how he has two pillars in his life, Balon and the Drowned God. And as we're introduced to him for the first time, Balon has just died. He's just gotten that news. And this is and now, so here we have Euron trying to shatter that other pillar of his life. And, and Euron shattered the, the first one because Euron killed Balon. But that Euron, uh, Aaron is able to hold on to this, to his faith so far. Or as we've talked about, maybe he won't, but for now he has. Nina writes, this is particularly important because it shows that A Song of Ice and Fire isn't as nihilistic as some people maybe put it out to be. Some people look at scenes like this. Euron at the Shield Islands is another good example of gratuitous. Like they just think this is just George just throwing a lot of extra violence at us. I do not agree with that. This All this has a point to it. It shows that the power of human belief, even if you don't, like, you don't have to celebrate the fact that this guy is a zealot. But it just goes to show how powerful human belief is, no matter how, take away how good this person is, take away the scenarios, just he's suffering through an enormous amount of literally unimaginable pain. No one here has, could possibly understand the pain he's going through. Like, it's just kind of unbelievable. And him staying strong throughout that is, that's pretty, in a way, you can look at that as uplifting as far as what humans are capable of. Of course, it's also the opposite side of, the evil that people are capable of. But anyway, I think that's really interesting and worth a mention how that's going to bleed in with the rest of his brothers as well or with his rest of his family. I'm very curious about. Okay, so let's talk about the devil and failure flowers is what I've called this section. <laughs> One thing that we associate with the devil in, uh, in Western mythology, I suppose, is the whole the deal with the devil concept where the devil promises you something that you want, something he knows you want. Like the classic example is Robert Johnson. Another Robert coming up. Lots of Roberts today. <laughs> Fine name. Yeah, it is. It's true. There's a reason that name gets used. 
made a deal with the devil to play guitar really well. Things like that. There's all sorts of stories like that and legend and myth. And they're all very similar in that the devil offers you something you really, really, really want that you are an offer you can't refuse to use the, uh, the mafia version of that. They make you an offer you can't refuse. And this is what Thalia got. She received like this line, my sons will come before them. He is sworn, sworn by your own drowned God. Like she's saying her kids with urine will come before any other kids that she, he has with like Danny or whatever. Huh. Well, that's clearly a lie. We've just, we've been, been over how swearing means absolutely nothing to Euron. He doesn't even probably believe that God exists. But we also weren't surprised that poor Phalia was being misled here. He gave her everything she wanted. He looked into her soul and was like, okay, this is a woman who's been rejected. She's been uh, put down. She's been unloved. She's been mistreated badly. Perhaps the most heartbreaking victim of Euron in this chapter, Nina writes, a teenage girl completely unprepared to deal with a sadistic monster on his quest for apocalyptic apotheosis. That's hard to say. <laughs> like literally, apocalyptic <laughs> apotheosis. Great phrase. Yeah, though. good job, Nina. And this is very much, uh, to me, this is a reminder of the love versus fear dichotomy that's always so present in discussions of power and leadership, like Tywin. Seminal example of love versus fear. Tywin is like, love is dead to me. I only rule through fear. Rob, opposite side. Rob, everybody loved Rob. They followed him. No one was, like, they weren't afraid of Rob, right? His followers, they weren't like, oh, we better do what he says or he's going to, no, they loved him. They're like, yeah, Rob, right? And so these are kind of polar opposites. Robert Baratheon himself, sort of uh, when he was younger. That's similar to Rob Stark. They followed him because they loved him. They thought he was great. Obviously, as a ruler, that didn't work out so well. Ned, for a certain. The North rises to save the Ned's girl. Like, the guy's not even alive, and they're still holding his memory tight and, and honoring him. So it's just a reminder of how an abused person, and a person who's been abused, is even more susceptible, potentially, to abuse by someone who's particularly manipulated. Like, Aaron, or rather... Euron recognized the abuse that was heaped on Phalia and used that to commit more abuse and more misleading. It's like Littlefinger, right? Littlefinger is the master of this. He, he goes around offering people the thing they want most. Um, a lot of, it's just part of why he's the purveyor of brothels. And um, then he has dirt on you. And for Euron, he doesn't care about the dirt. He just cares about the ownership it gives over you directly. It's more like control, direct control. And this is what he's done to the Ironborn. They want loot. They want glory. That's what he offered at the King's Moot. And eventually, though, he's going to discard them probably to get what he wants. Is that how you would approach this on a, on a high level? Or do you have some things to add to that? I would love to hear what you have to say about what Phalia Flowers represents. I mean, it's, it's a big horrible one. and tragic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. See, really, that's the first um, thing. That's always the first thing. Like, damn. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that we're supposed to uh, see that. I one the thing which struck me, which I didn't have chance to check, but I'm I'm at the end of this chapter when she ends up being strapped next to to the front of the ship uh, next to Aaron. Euron says, uh, "I have a gift for you." Yeah, and I think that's the same phrase he uses when giving the dusky woman to Victarion. Oh. Um, which, and, and I haven't followed that thought through yet, so I might just sort of leave that one hanging there. But certainly, if, if, that's, if that's the case, and I think it is, 
then George R. Martin is deliberately wanting us to see a link between those two people. And certainly they both seem to have had their tongues cut out yeah. as well. Uh, so uh, it's him giving, uh, giving, a, you know, giving a brother a, a, a woman, so to speak. So that is the... And he knows, incidentally, I do wonder whether when she came down a first saw Aaron, Aaron thought she was incredibly beautiful. It, it was like yes. the most beautiful, I can remember the exact phrase, but the most beautiful woman he'd seen or something like Ooh, that. Oh, I have the quote. I've got the quote. I'll grab it for you. Cause, uh, cause, excellent. Because we, we noticed that it's very similar to how uh, Aria thinks of the Black Pearl, which, which is a chapter that will be very close to this one. So we know how George loves to use similar language in chapters that are near other chapters. So here's the line from the Black Pearl. Yeah. She was so lovely that the lamp seemed to burn brighter when she passed. And then the one for Phalia... In the lantern light, she was the loveliest thing Aaron had ever seen. So we got the lamps and the lantern light thing. We've got the the comment, the loveliest thing or the lovely, so lovely that the lamp seemed to burn bright. So yeah, pretty pretty similar language. So the 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 link that I can certainly see there, Euron will know. He will know from Aaron's previous life, the first part of his life before he became austere. He was out all over the place. He will know what kind of woman. Aaron was attracted to at that time. So I do not think it is a coincidence that he picked the dusky woman, clearly Victorian likes, and this woman that he gives as a gift to Aaron, clearly Aaron likes. And so I think that she wasn't chosen just because Euron fancied her. I think it's he was thinking ahead, who is it that Aaron is going to start feeling, I mean, sympathy, yeah. I don't know, proprietorial yeah. towards, yeah. it's a sympathy, something like, something like that, which he clearly is starting to in a very small way, but it's clearly there. That then leads to the question, as I haven't followed this, this process all the way through, but why does Euron want to do that? Why does he want, does he want the other end, you know, you can now protect her? I don't know. It's, it's, but I think it's deliberate that he picked somebody that Aaron found attractive. Interesting, yeah. I do mm. think that probably if Euron found a girl attractive, probably Aaron does too, <laughs> you know, for what it's worth. <laughs> and also, I just want to say that the last name Flowers, her being a girl from the Reach, her just her name like puts off this connotation, this this image of, of sweetness, innocence, of naiveness, yeah. of innocence, yeah. 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 You're, you're totally right. And maybe a little guilt in Aaron's belief here because he feels somewhat responsible for the fact that Euron is in charge because he's the one who called for the king's moot. Winning the king's moot gave Euron even more authority than, than he had before that. Absolutely. And, and just as a complete aside, can we just take a moment to accept the fact that out of all of the rulers that we've got in the, the, this story, he is other than the Lord Commander of the, the, the Night's Watch, the closest thing we have to a democratically elected leader. <laughs> yep, yep, that's true. Yeah, democracy is sometimes not so great. <laughs> yep. It's just better than all the other things, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> I just want to also reiterate that psychedelics really are a big deal. Drugs, the connection between drugs and religion, I don't mean to be flippant. It's stronger than one might think. And I don't mean that drugs lead people to religion or the other way around. I just mean that there's a connection in terms of how dominating they can be in terms of how big a part of someone's personality or big a part of their outlook it can be. For example, what is one of the number one things they teach you at a recovery program is to believe in a higher power. 
Uh, a lot of people who have had severe addiction issues in their life turn to faith or something along those lines. So they, there is a strong connection that I don't have the psychological expertise to speak to. I don't understand it all, but I know it's a thing on some level, and Euron does too. So there's something here to that. I have a question for you that you partly answered. So let's maybe kind of reiterate oh, it here. Excellent. We were building up to this notion, did Euron fail to break Aaron? And I guess your answer was, the jury's still out on that. We don't know yet. He may yet yeah. break him, and he may not actually be trying. He may, have some other, he may know he's not going to break him and use that for something. I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, I think the only thing I would add to it is that I don't see in this, uh, this chapter, yes, it took place over a period of time, but it's not that every day Euron came down and was hammering away, trying to break his faith, all the rest of it. It was just on a few occasional times that he came down to it. This wasn't a long and protracted attempt to break him. This was just the build-up to that point. That, that's how it feels to me. So, as I say, this isn't the end of the process. I genuinely do not know how this is going to end. George R. Martin could take it either way. I don't think that Euron thought that leaving him down in a hold with a bit of water, making his feet puffy, and, and yes, it's not a nice image, but yeah, <laughs> just that was not going to break him, and I think that he knew that. Nice. Yeah, I like that take a lot. Returning to the comparison to Littlefinger briefly, we, we think about how we've, we've done a lot of comparison of Euron to Ramsay and Joffrey. Uh, Littlefinger is another precursor character who stands large on his own, or little on his own, but uh, has, uses a lot of the same methods here. And we, we spoke about this, this creating of chaos to benefit. That is a huge corollary here. Littlefinger, big on causing confusion, flat out civil war. Like he does things that lead to civil war and that's what he wants. And now he's planning on profiteering off starvation. Basically anything he can do to empower himself without scruples. And that sounds a lot like what Euron's doing, but Euron has tools that Littlefinger doesn't have. Littlefinger doesn't have an army. Littlefinger doesn't have magic. And Littlefinger isn't a warrior himself. He doesn't have like physical prowess like Euron has at least some, although we don't actually know how much Euron has in this means. Uh, but he clearly knows how to fight and Littlefinger doesn't. Uh, so that's just, he's just the culmination of villainhood in this series in so many ways. He's the, he's the end state of the worst type of character on a personal level and the end state of the worst type of politician slash leader. Yeah, just it's really impressive what George has piled into this character. But yeah, this whole chaos is a ladder thing. That is really what's going on here. Like Littlefinger unleashing civil war, very similar to what you said about him unleashing Krakens or unleashing the others and then just providing the solution. Littlefinger's grain profiteering is the same thing. He's like, he's going to let people starve and then sell them grain at huge profits. But he, you know, he's creating, helping create the problem or taking advantage of an existing problem. Like he's not creating winter. But he is helping manipulate. He is manipulating the situation to make money from it and hurting people. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the little finger thing is that the yes, the chaos is a ladder thing, absolutely. But there is a very crucial difference between the two. Little finger, generally speaking, doesn't want it known that he's the one who created the chaos. Yes, he's he's there. He creates the chaos. He hides, and then he identifies a way that he can gain. And nobody thinks that it was it was him who did it. That's how he operates. Euron, the exact opposite. He wants everyone to know it was him. He wants he, any chaos that happens, he wants the, the credit for it. He wants people to be seeing him and thinking, this is a bringer of chaos. This is, he, he is not just 
making the best of whatever's going out there. He is the protagonist who's bringing everything uh, all the time. That is how he wants people to see him. So there's a, a big difference between those two, I would say. Nice. Really helps round out the uh, picture here. A couple of related questions here. Uh, some of these things about the battle we've already covered, but a couple of uh, loose ends here. One thing that's interesting to me is the comparison between the captured ships uh, between Victorian and Euron. Now, it makes sense that they would both just have a bunch of merchant ships that they've captured along the way. Here's a pair of quotes. The noble lady was a tub of a ship, as fat and wallowing as the noble ladies of the green lands. With her would sail the other, lesser prizes that the Iron Fleet had taken on its long voyage to Slaver's Bay, a lubberly assortment of cogs, great cogs, carracks, and trading galleys salted here and there with fishing boats. Can I just say real quick, I cannot hear that first little section of the line without hearing George's voice because he read that chapter out loud. And <laughs> yeah. so I just hear his big voice going, the noble lady was a tub of a ship. And that's the first line of the chat. Like those are the actual yes. three sentences of that chapter or two sentences. Yeah. Beyond them, a host of merchant ships floated on a tranquil turquoise sea. Cogs, carracks, fishing boats, even a great cog, a swollen sow of a ship as big as the Leviathan. Prizes of war, the Bampen. So the similarity is calling them prizes of war. There's this one particularly large ship that gets described and, you know, what they're, what they're used for. So Joe Buckley had an idea that maybe part of Euron's plan here, it's not, maybe it's not just Krakens. He's also got some plan to use, a merchant, use merchant ships as bait or as maybe they're just added onto his fleet. It might just be that simple. But Victorian's got a plan. He's got like a he's doing the Trojan horse fleet thing. And Joe's suggestion is maybe Euron is doing something similar to that to maybe make it look like a merchant fleet's under attack. To the red wine fleet comes in to try and help, and actually the merchant ships are filled with ironborn. It's just an idea. I like it. It would we we know that parallels happen more in a song of ice and fire than most stories, so we're a little more keen to predict them. We shouldn't try and overanalyze the strategic battle plan that Euron's got here, in my view. He is trying to create chaos. He is trying to create destruction. And so, yes, maybe he's done that. Maybe he will do... Maybe this is just the what we had a few hints of earlier in the chapter mm-hmm. as well, that he he gets stuff to give to people to get them on his side. He's now... He's got the, the, the trappings of, of war, the prizes of war... And I already talked about that. I think that the timing here is to try and do this at the same time as the, the battle over on the far, uh, over in Slaver's Bay. But it's also noticeable that they've been sat there for a little while waiting, mm. waiting for the Red Wine fleet to come. He could, if he'd wanted to tactically win this battle, he could have decided, you know what, I, will, I can take on one of these fleets first. That's the logical thing. Strategically, mm. that's the logical thing because there are two fleets here. There's yeah. the High Towers have got their fleet and there's the Red Wines have got their fleet. He's been hanging around just waiting. Yeah, he's not trying to and avoid knowing, this trap at all. He's, he's letting them do it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So the strategically logical thing to do would be to try and take on one fleet first and then take on the other one. That's, that's yeah, um, you're totally right. Battle Strategy 101. But he is not. He's holding back because he wants a bigger battle. So uh, whenever we're trying to think about what tactics is he doing here, 
his aim is not to defeat the enemy. His aim is just to have a huge battle. Nice idea. Yeah, that really fits with your idea of just as much death as possible at once. Because yeah, you're right. The strategy is, is very peculiar in that sense. It, also, it very much reminds me of some of the other battles that we're facing at the beginning here uh, of, the, of the book. We have Yunkai's armies are trapped between Victorian and Barrison, who even compares it to Makar Baylor, the, the hammer and the anvil. So it's a very direct reference to, to um, that sort of maneuver. And the Golden Company is going to face Mace Tyrell, and some of Mace's bannermen might turn and fight with the Golden Company, thus trapping, potentially trapping Mace's army between the two. And Stannis, similarly, is quite happy to sit and wait for this, uh, this army from Winterfell to come right at him, even though he's outnumbered. And <laughs> because, well, as I wrote here, Stannis will send his foes to the deep. Euron's going to send the deep to his foes, presumably nice. through Kraken. So, yeah, nice. And uh, while... Can I, can I ask Go ahead. you one question in this? Because it's something, again, just rereading the chapter, something which stood out, and I don't genuinely don't know whether anyone's thought this through, whether it's just me reading too much into it. There's a certain phrase, the black water is mentioned, I think, three times in this. Mm. The, the, the water being described as black. Now, this is the kind of thing George R. R. Martin does when he talks about blood bruised skies that's that's got a very clear reference there black water i don't know whether anyone has symbolically thought of that obviously i then think about the battle of the black water is this another thing he could be doing is this a hint we've got from wildfire coming in um, i don't know <laughs> that would be something that would be if you're if you're wanting if you're wanting extra bits of damage and carnage and all the rest of it wildfire would be something um, amazing there so i don't know it's it's just it was just a random thought is george r. r martin trying to tell us something with that phrase uh, a few other people actually took note of that and one person brought up something that i appreciated was that the reference to the iliad how homer liked to describe the wine dark sea as a as a hmm. important uh, line that gets cited a lot and george in victorian's chapters very keen on describing the sea uh, what state it's in, which it makes sense for Victorian's POV being a sailor, he would be constantly aware of such things. But it, as usual, it doesn't have to mean only one thing. George is amazing with sentences, you know, speaking to multiple things at once or multiple plots or multiple ideas. I like, I like your, I like considering that. It's a, it's a kind of theory that's worth considering. Um, just going to say, and, and when I was going off on my own little mental flight of fancy, this is, you know, we can call this tinfoil if you want. I think most people think that there's a fair chance that the library is going to burn yeah. in Old Town. Might that be also uh, a wildfire thing? I don't know. Oh. It's just, uh, or, or alternative option, maybe a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> if you has got, got a dragon. Burns down the whole thing. Exactly. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, that is, uh, and, and that brings us back to something we touched on at the beginning. Does he? Yes, he might want things in the High Tower. He might want things in the Citadel. He might want some things in them, and then to destroy them afterwards. He may want some other combination of things. And this again reminds us of Night King. Night King wanted to destroy Bran because Bran said his knowledge was what Night King wanted to destroy. He wanted to get rid of human knowledge because that's the biggest way to set back humanity is to get rid of all the accumulated knowledge that civilization is based on, right? If, if Euron can destroy all that knowledge, it really enables him to uh, rule over a weakened world. 
he wants to make humanity weak so he can rule it. Well, destroying the accumulated knowledge is an incredibly potent and dark way of doing that. Talk about casting humanity into a metaphorical darkness. The darkness of ignorance is something I'm sure George would see it as that, as a, you know, the dark ages, right? Like that's a, a mm-hmm. similar concept because one of the things about the dark ages, we, the reason we call it that is because there's no records. <laughs> it was a really bad time. The lack of records is an is a extension of that because the times were so bad, people didn't have time to write things down. They were too busy surviving. So that's the world you're on once. You're on once a desperate world that's easier to rule and taking out the greatest parts of humanity is part of it. By the way, we're talking about Old Town being burned. I would be remiss if I did not, of course, mention the other city in A Song of Ice and Fire that was a city of scholars that has been burned, which is Salash, um, part of, you know, the Sarnori. That's a good point. Another, the the room, was it the the Pals of a Thousand Rooms, I think it was called, something like that? The Sarnori were a pretty big, powerful civilization. And it like almost everything they know was destroyed forever. There's no, there's like almost no Sarnite culture anywhere. But if they, if, if some of these books had survived, well, quite a lot, it could have survived with them. And with the Weirwood Network as a stand in for human knowledge or as a repository for, for human memory is a really powerful concept. A couple of people pointed out that in one of the visions, there's the blackened skulls, but there's also a forest burning behind Euron. And a few people interpreted that as Euron being an enemy to the old gods or an enemy to the children of the forest. Do you see it that way? And is Euron aware that he's a rejected green seer? Let's, let's say that, let's, let's accept that theory just for argument's sake. Maybe you do or don't already. But let's say he's a failed green seer. They checked him out. Blood Ravens found him and decided, no, actually, this guy's too dark. We're not going to use him after all. What if he's aware of that? And... Going back to the daddy issues stuff, like what if he's mad that he, they didn't think he was good enough so he's going to destroy them all? Or like maybe, I, I wouldn't say that's his full motivation, but there's like an element of, of being rejected. Is that taking it too far or is there, you think maybe there's something there? I think there's definitely something there. I, so I, we probably don't have time to get into all of the background to why that might be the case. But if you just think of brands journey as a sort of this seems to be how it goes is that you get blood raven kind of makes contact doesn't really seem to know necessarily who he is because when he then sent uh jojen amira uh, to go off and find him it was just like the this is his avatar yeah he didn't say go find bran uh, stark he said you're looking for the, the the wolf with the wings held down by chains that was the, the avatar so Probably he doesn't know exactly who that is. And this also gives a, as a hint to the starting point for Bran is you have this dream and you have this, do you fly? If you do fly, you therefore that seems to be uh, a starting point for your magic. You're, you're awakening the idea of magic within you. But it doesn't get fully unleashed until you get the weirwood paste that's the point where his mind is completely open to, to this and he can become the green seer and use the green seer talents more broadly. He has some, they probably like all of the Starks had some things just inherently. Then he had a li- little bit of a boost with the, the dream. Then there was the full unleashing. So map that across to Euron. If we say he's got some natural gifts anyway, which sounds about, sensible yeah then he had the dream 
So he's had this opening up to, to actually be more magical in some way. But if after that, then Blood Raven goes, oh, actually, you know what? Uh, no. Or maybe it's just because he happened to be on the Iron Islands or went off over to Essos and they lost contact because, you know, the Weirwood Network does seem to have a kind of a range mm. uh, in some way. But for whatever reason, that stopped. What you've got is this person with an awakened magical powers needing something to tip him over the equivalent of the Weirwood Paste, and that's going to be the thing which gives him the real powers, the real Greenseer powers. Euron then gets the Shade of the Evening. Mm. That is the thing which completes his journey. So he was on the Greenseer path, but then it gets turned, rather than get it fulfilling the Greenseer path of becoming magical uh, um, Greenseer, he gets the, the dark twisted uh, anti-version of it being the shade of the evening. And that is what opens up his power. So that's my general take on what's going there. I like it. Where do we think he goes after Old Town? This is actually a question from Eric Ford. I'm going to actually combine this with another question we have. Do you think that maybe King's Landing is next? Or do you think there might be something else in between? And also, it's just like hard to consider like how young Griff fits into all this. If, if, if his team takes King's Landing and advances Cersei, is Euron going to come to King's Landing and fight him? Or is he going to bring help take, bring Cersei with him? Is that how Cersei's going to get back to King's Landing? I, I see a couple of different possibilities, but I'm, I'm curious what you think. Okay, there are a lot of moving parts here. They really are. So, yes, it's difficult. <laughs> uh, it, it is. So the, very roughly, very high level, the way the most logical path that I see through for this is so where we leave it, Cersei's in control of King's Landing. Mm-hmm. She's going to uh, Varys has basically he's got rid of Kevin. She's going to do a knee jerk reaction because that's what she does. Yeah. It's going to be whether it's blowing up the Great Sept as we had on the show, or so it's going to be something like that. She's got enemies uh, with the, the against the Faith and against the Tyrells, who she's going to blame for murdering Kevin. So she is going to do that. That is going, she's then going to be in sole command of a city which has been uh, having some kind of atrocity in it. I see her very much as this Rhaenyra kind of feel of being in charge of a city where the people are turning against her. She is not going to be a good ruler. At the same time at which we get the uh, Fagon arriving. Now, Fagon, I think, is going to take King's Landing because I think that. what we're told again and again, there are actually many Lannister soldiers in King's Landing yeah. at the moment. Uh, so they seems to suggest the Claw Dragon on polls like he'll have some sort of success. Yeah, exactly. And so I think she will get out in some way. Fagon will come in and will be a good king for a while. He will probably do the good things. Um, uh, and this is George R. R. Martin saying, you know. He may or may not be who he says he is. Does that matter if he's actually ruling wisely? Mm -hmm, So for a short period of time, I suspect that. Where does Cersei go? The only place she can go is Castley Rock from that point. So she has to go back to Castley Rock. Castley Rock is actually not all that far from Old Town. And she will be looking for who does she get as an ally? She will think that she is the rightful ruler. Who does she get as an ally? Who is left? She can't ally with the Starks. She can't. Uh, she won't be uh, allying with with Dawn. What's who's it? It's Euron. Euron by this point will realise he's not going to get Daenerys, and he wants somebody to rule with him. So that makes sense. Yes. So then we've got 
them in somehow getting together. At which point we've got Danny is going to be arriving towards trying to get King's Landing uh, and probably the others arriving. In the lot. And this is where I see the Winter Winter roughly ending. It's Ice and Fire, and the Song of Ice and Fire, finally breaching Westeros. That's where I see that. Bringing this all back around yeah, to Euron. I'm with you, I'm with you. Where, do, where does he go next? Inland. Mm. Absolutely. He yeah. will be very happy with the fact that Danny and Fagon, and I think all the hints are that Danny will uh, show that Fagon isn't who he claims to be and all the rest of it. Yeah. He'll be very happy for them to be fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Where do they go? They push inland. And I think that, again, that the imagery, symbolism, hints that we've got, Harren Hall seems to be a, a perfect place for him to set up his base with Cersei. That, which brings me back to those trees. What if he does have a grudge against the children of the forest and he has got a dragon? Is he going to try and burn down the Isle of Faces? Or, or at least uh, just the weirwood. And yeah, he might. Wow. Yeah. It, mm. It's that. It's the, I mean, it sounds crazy but it's the logical thing for him to it do is. if if these assumptions that we've made are correct it is the logical thing for him to uh, <laughs> to do and so i think while he's doing that we've got the others are going to be encroaching from the north danny is going to be then will will uh, have sorted out the fagon situation and then she turns her attention to what's happening in the north and so the question is does does euron then go into King's Landing because it's now pretty much empty. Yeah. That, I think, for me, is the thing. But I think Hall symbolically, that works really well for me as being like the where they capture next. If King's Landing is, it suffers some sort of destruction, too, that would really fit in well with the Euron ruling over blackened skulls and all that. Like, this is what's yeah. left of it. I like that a lot. Your, your thoughts are pretty similar to mine in a lot of ways because especially because we're keeping it on a high level we're not trying to get too deep in the details so yeah. only one thing i would add to that is it also fits in with something else the show gave us which is daenerys's armies on the east coast fighting with lannister forces in, in the on the west coast like kind of meeting in the middle tier remember all that stuff about Tyrion being outmaneuvered by jamie well yeah that was all happening while cersei was allied to euron it's just they still had king's landing at the time that's not really that big of a difference if they don't have king's landing or even if they do you're still, you still have the same scenario where Daenerys has Dragonstone and maybe Dorne, if, if that's progressed far enough, or who knows what Dorne is doing. Uh, the Stormlands, maybe. Uh, yeah, and then you've got, like you said, Hall in the middle. Harrenhal's just in the middle of everything. I mean, it's the middle of the continent. It's it the middle of the story, the Isle of Faces. So yeah, I'm with you, because it also brings us back to that, what we talked about at the beginning, where Euron is very much a, uh, a parallel to Aemond One-Eye, and that is where he died, over the God's Eye. and You've got mystery there with illusory dragons and Alice Rivers and stuff happening afterwards that's unresolved in Fire and Blood and maybe some of that wraps in somehow I don't know but yeah I got it and just in the chat Harry Krishnan saying Harren Hall is a symbol of ironborn history and dominance let's not forget that Very. this was ironborn who who uh, Harren the Black was the person who built it and it was hubris right that was what this was about this was the person who had such an, a massive ego and Who's got the massive ego? Yeah, Euron. there is. Yeah, he's. Uh, that is great. Yeah, so I think we've we've connected a lot of dots here today. Here's in a couple of small dots to connect. Uh, we know that one priest, the war warlock, rather is is pre, pre most certainly. He's uh, 
swinging on his chains, kind of like Theon is. Of course, Theon and, and Aaron both in chains at the start of their chapter. Greyjoy's being uh, in torment is well, comes kind of often, I suppose. Another interesting note from Nina as well, just to add on to the whole Quellon stuff, and maybe to add a little extra piece of Aaron's personality, make sure we keep keep sight of, is that Nina points out that if, uh, Theon's brothers would have been of an age with Aaron, but there's no indication he was ever friends with them. But he liked Asha. He thinks Asha is the one who's most like their father. And most like mm-hmm. Kellon, which we've noted before. Yeah, Kellon was somewhat progressive. And your heir, Asha's kind of, obviously, a, as far as Ironborn goes, she's pretty progressive. Um, she wanted to make friends with traditional enemies and, and build and trade instead of fight. So, yeah, and Kellon was... a queen. Yeah, and Kellon was doing some of those same things. So, Well, I did the, uh, a video a while ago just trying to plot out the winds of winter. Uh, in terms of how big it was going to be. <laughs> and it was very obvious that when you start, you can start plotting out the obvious, the first few chapters, actually, we we can be reasonably certain about yeah. in most people's plot lines. And there are a lot of different plot lines. So probably for half a book, we can be reasonably certain about what's going to happen. Beyond that, it starts to get really quite murky, it has to be said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Guinevere Greenstone says, I think Euron just just doesn't care what's real, only what he can use for his advantage. Yeah, I, that's a fine way to put it, yeah. And, 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 and as Robert said, it, it almost doesn't matter what the truth is it's because it does, it does amount to this, whether whatever's behind it. So I think this is a good way to distill the issue. Well said, Guinevere. Uh, Nina says, some scholars have suggested that the dragon lords regarded all faiths as equally false, believing themselves to be more powerful than any god or goddess. They looked upon priests and temples as relics of a more primitive time, though useful for placating slaves, savages, and the poor with promises of a better life to come. Well, we've talked about how Euron is trying to... A lot of the trappings of power he's gathered are those of Valyria. The armor, the horn, the dragons, the coloring even. He's even got black and red coloring for his flag. He is sort of trying to have... He does seemingly have a similar attitude. That's a pretty good take that he's looking on all the gods as fake, kind of like the way the Valyrians do. Do you see, do you have anything to add to this whole concept of Euron and Valyria and trying to like re, re kind of rejuvenate what they were doing and, and use some of their same ruling techniques and all that? Well, only in as much as getting a dragon is only half of the issue. Ooh. It's it, he, and we, we had this in, uh, in Danny's last chapter is that she, She's there when Drogon's flown her off to somewhere she did not want to go. And she's pondering, oh, I I vaguely remember the Valyrians. They had horns that could control dragons. Um, So, which is, and and magically, there's a horn suddenly coming towards Slaver's Bay. So she will probably end up getting that. How does Euron control a dragon once it arrives? Is it all in once it's been blown because he's got, He's, he's got a magical bond with the, the, that horn now that once it has blown and it's been captured, that's then his dragon. That's the bit that is still very vague. Or is he just going to have a wild dragon that flies around? Ha, um, I, 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 I don't know. It's, 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 it, getting the dragon is, that, that's the easy bit. Yeah. It's, it's what you do with it once you've got it. Um, I mean, Danny can't control her dragon. So what, where's Euron going to get the ability to do that from? But what the trappings that he has been uh, returning with or, or starting to present have been Valyrian ones. So he's yeah. definitely trying to echo it. But that's as much because he's got the Valyrian steel armor. He had a dragon egg, allegedly. Um, we'd be thinking about you know, the, the glass candles and all the rest of it. They're, they're, he is definitely using that. But I personally don't think he's trying to 
mimic them. He's just using the best thing that he can find. Yeah. The thing which is the most effective, the thing which is the most impressive. Everyone thinks that all the Valyrian stuff has gone and disappeared. Oh, no, it hasn't. I've got a whole suit of armor. <laughs> this, is, this is the way that he's playing the game. If there was something that was a hugely impressive from somewhere else, then I think he would use that. And, and actually, complete aside, when you go back through book one, as I have been doing, the link between the Dothraki and what he's doing here is very strong. They swept all across what is now the Dothraki Sea, and then you get yeah. the, the road that heads into Vase Dothrak. It's, it's lined by all of the dead gods, the gods yes. of the people that they've conquered. Good, yes. And that is the, the, the symbolism is very much there. He is setting himself up as all of the symbols of, or, or, or whether he's deliberately doing it or George R. Martin is wanting us to see it. The symbols of conquerors, the Iron Throne is there, the symbol of Aegon the Conqueror. He's got this link across to the Dothraki like that. The Valyrians, he's there. He is getting this image of being the conqueror. I don't want to draw it too much to Daenerys here, but there's that connection as well, of course, and that Euron wants to marry Daenerys and Daenerys does marry a Dothraki and kind of seems to like a bad boy. That's a good point, yeah. And, and of course, we must, and we return back to the very recent example of the Sarnori, who were the ones who were destroyed by the Dothraki. So that's, yeah, this is very true. Like you, and, and they are like the Dothraki's Ooh, that's attitude. a really good point, actually, when you bring that up. What's that? That's a really good point, bringing up the comparison between the Dothraki, you know, destroying Salash, and then Euron destroying Old Town. And they are, like, from a religious perspective, they, like, they believe that, like, tilling the earth is, is evil. You know, so like they're yeah. like talk about they trying do to do not so, yeah. Talk about beliefs that, that reset like humanity to an earlier time. They don't believe in writing, reading, farming. Like, geez, <laughs> what do we have without those things? I mean, and they came up out of the water from the womb of the world. Exactly. The, the DP you go into, there are lots. They, they seem completely different. Uh, and they probably, well, they may well not meet in any way, shape, or form. But th- there are links. That's actually a really yeah, good I mean, link. You said, stuff, like, emerging yeah. from the sea yeah, on a horse. Sure. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Never thought on, of that one. That's really On good. the Dothraki Sea. It's just like, again, <laughs> it's uh, say it, uh, wow. it's. Um, George is so good at this. <laughs> We've got another good point here from Nina okay. that I wanted to bring up. We were talking a lot about what Aaron's next chapter would be because George did say that Aaron would have another chapter. Yep. Uh, who knows? I don't know if anyone thinks it'll be more than one chapter. I think it'll be just one, I yeah. hope. Um, and I brought up what we've talked about before, which is the idea that Aaron's chapter will just be him on the prow of the ship with like a front row view of the battle and then he dies but nina brings up something she says aaron may even believe that the appearance of krakens is the will of the drowned god defying euron rather than believing euron summoned them and then he's killed right after yeah he dies thinking the krakens are coming for yeah Yeah, that's possible yeah (laughs) i like it uh just on the the chapters thing it's worth just sort of taking a step back and looking at sort of the the art of writing. What George R. R. Martin does with the POV chapters is he tends to, he wants to tell the story and he introduces characters as POV characters when we need to see bits of the story that we otherwise wouldn't. Mm. So, for example, um, we get John Connington appears as a POV character once Tyrion's gone away because he still wants us to see what's happening with Fagon 
but Tyrion is no longer there to show it to us. Mm. Uh, when you get at Melisandre magically appeared as a POV character, why is she magically appeared as a POV character? Because at the wall, Sam's gone away um, and John is about to die. So mm. whose eyes are we going to see what happens at the wall through? It's Melisandre. It be, yeah. So. And you can you can pick up the same thing. Ario Hota, it's a Barristan. Always, a, Danny's gone away. How do we know what's going on in Marine? Ah, that's because we've introduced the Barristan as, as a, uh, a POV check. Taking that across to where Aaron, Aaron is who we are seeing what Euron's doing through his eyes. If we take George R. R. Martin at his word that, and I think we probably can this time, that he's not planning on introducing any new main POV yeah. characters, that means that this whole bit of Euron's story, we've got three possible people. We've got Cersei probably at the end of it. Yeah. Uh, we will see that. We'll probably have Sam will be able to see an attack or something on Old Town. 100% agree. Anyth- anything else that we find out about Euron is going to be through Aaron. So this battle, yes, definitely. But if we want to see... Any other thought process, any other bit of plot to do with him, Aaron has to be the person there. And that means we have to have another chapter from him. So it really depends on how much George R. R. Martin wants us to see what's going on with him. And from a writing, that's a really good point. From a writing perspective, that may explain why this chapter is so front-loaded with information. Because if, if he's only planning on having two or three chapters with Aaron, you've got to just do it all now before it becomes Sam, who has far less insight onto this character. Sam's going to be on the outside looking in, whereas Aaron has, like you said, a front prow seat. And we do not want Sam anywhere near this, more <laughs> importantly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we're, probably the Sam chapter is going to be the, the, the city's all in flames and him running away trying to grab a few books and find Gilly and get out of there. That is going to be what his chapter is about. It, it, Euron, it's just the impact of Euron rather than actually seeing Euron do a thing. Yes, yes. Well said. Very minor note here. Nina points out that, yeah, they are at the Alapigs, but she, she, her guess is that they are ruled by House Pharaoh because Pharaoh means a litter of pigs. And uh, House Pharaoh is a vassal to the red wine. So this is in the general area where they would exist. So small note, but that's cool. I, I would agree with that guess. Can I, I share my pun? My own. George says Dothraki instead of Dothraki. So Dothraki Ironborn. <laughs> amazing. I just read that in the chat, so that was wonderful. Yeah. Love it. Here's a nice comedic observation from Rolling Knight from our Flick channel. Bloodraven looked inside Euron and said, actually, no, nah, not you. And after Euron touched his brother who had Grayscale, 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 it could have infected him, but Grayscale itself actually said, nah, actually not you. <laughs> <laughs> Grayscale, even Grayscale doesn't want anything to do with Euron. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Okay. We it feels like we could have could go another three hours talking about this chapter, but at some point we have to stop. So we'll call it now. Thanks everyone for coming to join us today for this awesome discussion. I hope we have added a whole host of new ideas for y'all on Euron and going forward and Aaron and Thalia and Krakens and Danny and all this stuff. It's really neat to see how these plot lines are coming together. That's one of the particular fun things I see about this chapter. Uh, that we hadn't considered quite as much. Uh, given reacting to it right away, it's harder to, to wrap it all together into everything and about the TV show. Yeah, um, I think it's pretty cool, too, to compare how we covered it before, how you can cover something so differently in just the same chapter. 
Yeah. What about you, Robert? Isn't it kind of any, any comments on how the iteration and uh, evolution of viewing this chapter is kind of an interesting thing, kind of like a, like a microcosm of how this fandom works? It is. It's, um, I, I think everybody's reaction first and whenever you come to it is just to be blown away by it, though. I think that's the, the thing. It's, it's only when you start uncovering the, the levels inside it. It's out of all the pre-release chapters. It's the one, I think, that you can get more for each level you go down into it uh, and hints about where the story is going in the future as much as anything else. So, yeah, it's, it has moved as we've got, particularly as we started off on this, as we've had the TV show and as we've had Fire and Blood, it's allowed us to get a little bit more of an idea about where George's mind is on us. Very well said. Well, and thank you very much, Robert, for coming on. This was a fantastic discussion. Thanks for helping us read the quotes. Your thoughts were amazing. You added a lot of things I never thought about. I imagine that's the same for a lot of listeners today. They gave them a lot of things that they had never uh, considered before or perhaps expanded on things they had. So I think we've, we've done a good job today, if I say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you again for having me on. As I say, I, I count, uh, I count the, the, the two of you as being the, the creme de la creme of this community. So it's an always a pleasure. Well, we will, I'm sure, collaborate again at some point in the not-too-distant future. And we'll make sure everyone knows about that when it's going to happen. Uh, please join us on our uh, Facebook group, our Discord, our Slack, our uh, all our social media, really. Great ways to communicate with us. You can send us questions. You can interact with us in other ways. And uh, I believe we are absolutely going to ask you again to submit your voices for our Winds of Winter audio project. Yes, currently we are so close to having everyone for Tyrion 2. We essentially do, but I would like another shot at Brown Ben. So if you have a good take on Brown Ben Plum, now is the time to submit your voice. I have a backup, but you know. Yeah. Hello, I'm Brown Ben Plum. Oh, oh that's perfect. <laughs> that's exactly what I hear. Now, the, the problem... What you have in mind. The problem for me is that I don't actually know what voice I picture for Brown Ben. I don't have I a I can good... only hear Roy DeTrice's version, which is fine. Like, some of DeTrice's voices are off, but that one works for me. Yeah, like, I, yeah, I don't know what vibe I get. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to describe. Like like older, kind of soft spoken, but 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 he's but amiable sometimes. Amiable but but dishonest. Like you get that yeah. sense that he's lying. <laughs> but yeah, like is it a big voice, like a booming voice? I don't I don't I don't, know. I don't think so. I think he has more of a soft Well the voice you said you like best was more of a booming voice. Well, yeah, voice. but I liked it, but I but you're but yeah, yeah. I mean uh, so yeah, it's interesting. So yes, please submit your voice. Anyway, yeah, so we mentioned a few different uh, previous episodes we we did here. Um, the Forsaken episode, we, we, our original coverage of this chapter, we go deeper into talk about his brothers, more on the Valyrian steel, other ancient artifacts, other theories in regards to things that might be there. We talk more about Shade of the Evening, more Danny and Aaron comparisons. In our actual Euron Greyjoy episode, we talk a lot more historical parallels, characters like the Grey King, the Bloodstone Emperor and the Red Kraken, who we, we didn't hardly mention any of those today, but there's a very rich comparisons there. We talk about why he wears an eye patch. There's a lot more on Kellon Greyjoy, some history of him. There's also an early version of Euron and the Horn of Winter Theory from Emmett Booth, um, which is in that episode. Actual Emmett is in there. <laughs> Tactics that uh, Euron might use. There's some additional things we bring up there. So a lot of expansion on that. Also, I recommend checking out the Ashai Great Empire of the Dawn stream that I did with you, Robert. That was on your channel. That was good times. 
There was some. It was. It was a while ago now, but it was excellent. It was fun. You, you brought the fire. Yeah, and I think some some of it's definitely relevant to this. Uh, mostly, mostly it stands on its own, but there's some definite connections. Uh, also, people in the chat brought up the connection to our Werewood episodes. Yes, that's a good call out. Yeah, our Werewood episodes have some strong relevance here. Yeah, considering all the shade of the evening talk. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, so next time we finish off the Winds of Winter. We've only there's only one chapter we haven't done yet. It was actually planned for a, a while back, but we had to reschedule it. That is Theon One with Jason Concepcion. So that should be great. What do you have coming up next? We talked about what you've been doing recently. But what do you have coming up, Robert? Anything you want to shout out that maybe we didn't mention or you want to re-shout out? I think I'll just re-shout out what I said before. It, it, if you if you're interested in Lord of the Rings as well as A Song of Ice and Fire, then uh, do check out my channel. Uh, I'll be covering that. Also, probably The Witcher, uh, and I'm considering a few other things um, like The Wheel of Time. I still haven't decided. I'm waiting for the trailer on, on The Wheel of Time uh, before deciding on that. Um, but if you are interested in classic science fiction and fantasy stories you like audiobooks, then do check out my second channel. Um, which is called The Well-Told Tale. Yes, please do. Yeah, do it. Check out Indie Peak. Check out The Well-Told Tale. And let him know about some of these other fandoms that he's on the fence with. If you want to see him cover uh, Wheel of Time, you should let him know. I have read The Wheel of Time myself. I'm looking forward to the show. I have no plans on covering it, but I'm very excited to watch it. And, of course, we're covering The Witcher on our own podcast called The Podcast of Surprise. Maybe one day we'll do a collaboration, uh, a Witcher collaboration. That'd be fun. That'll be fun. Yeah. Um, so everyone in the chat, uh, and if you're listening afterwards, say hi to my mother. She was our studio audience today, visiting. She's right over there. Woo! Yeah. Yay! <laughs> so thanks everybody for coming. Thanks to Ashea for managing so much at once, running production like a kraken with many arms over there. Don't forget about historyofwesteros.threadless.com. We got these shirt designs here. We got the Werewood shirt, and we got the regular black, red, and white History of Westeros logo shirt. Thank you to our History of Westeros mods for managing things over on Facebook. Great job done over there. Our Facebook group is very active. Our uh, Flick and Slack and Discord channels have some things going on as well. Uh, our Discord channel has really been getting more and more active, uh, partly because there's so many other topics hosted there. Flick is very focused on the chapters only. So yeah, Discord. Sorry? I was just going to say the Discord is a really good place to join if you want to talk about House of the Dragon and yes. any other spinoffs because I've been posting spoilery stuff because there's a lot of filming stuff that I don't want to post on Facebook all the time. People don't want to see it, yeah. but I want to talk about it. So if you want to see all sorts of behind-the-scenes filming stuff, then... The different yeah. platforms provide different ways to engage with the material and each other, so we use them all. So pick the one that you like best or multiples, and we'll see you there. Thanks also to Michael Clarfeld, a.k.a. Claradox.de, for the maps behind you and for the video intro. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Revitas music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular History of Westeros intro-outro. Thanks to our engineer for the sound quality assistance and engineering, as the name indicates. Thank you very much to our patrons for keeping the lights on, keeping all the show functioning. Financial support is, well, we couldn't live without it. Let's put it that way. And of course, we as usual like to shout out our friends over on Here Be Dragons today. They are talking about the classic movie, Never Ending Story. And if you're a fan of that one, well, they just started maybe a minute ago. So if you're catching the replay of our show, then you can go catch the replay of theirs. If you're catching this live, why not head over there right now and have a good time with them? 
Thanks to everyone for being here live. Thanks to Robert again. And we'll see you all next time for more Valar Rereads.